Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Character and Smallman podcast, powered by I Promise. Now here's Character and Smallman. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Character and Smallman on 101 ESPN. It's 701. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler with Michelle Smallman. I'm Randy Character. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Randy. How are you? I'm doing great. It was great to have the Blues back on the ice playing competitive last night, and uh, we're hearing now that we are going to start baseball on time, which is very cool. Things are kind of falling into place. And the Blues won last night. Yeah, well... (laughs) That was when they took the ice. You knew they were going to, didn't you? Absolutely. Was, they, they just had that look about them that they were going to dominate. And uh, yeah, they, they both sides, both teams played very, very well. But I, I would suggest that uh, if the Blues can play like that on a regular basis and come away with wins like that on a regular basis, they won't lose a game all season. It doesn't really matter who's on the ice. No, the Blues are going to win in a situation like that. But even. <laughs> reading and hearing the scrimmage, I'm getting so antsy for Blues hockey to start, to have the puck drop and have the Blues play real games. It seems like forever since we last got to watch Blues hockey. Yeah, six more days. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. And you're going to have to because it starts at 9.30. (laughs) (laughs) What time do you think I should drink a coffee that day? Five, six o'clock? Is six too late? Is it too early? Am I going to crash and burn? Six, five, seven, eight, oh, if you're a night owl. Because I'm going to have to pace myself that day. Maybe work a nap in because we've got to stay up and watch it. <laughs> we sure do. Looking forward to it. The blue team did beat the white team 5-2. to two. Blue goals from Miko Mikola. Uh, Mikola. Uh, Ryan O'Reilly, Jordan Cairo, Sammy Blay, and Zach Sanford, who looked good. And white goals from Austin Pagansky and Robert Thomas. And it looked to me like Jordan Biddington, and it sounded to me like Jordan Biddington played very well and was on top of his game. And Michelle, I thought the interesting part of last night, to get things started, and we talked a lot about this ever since the Blues signed Tory Krug and then made the addition of Mike Hoffman, they really did focus on the power play a lot last night. Yeah, it's so good to see those guys getting out there, getting their feet wet, starting to get into a rhythm. And I think if you're listening... As the night went on, obviously, it seemed like they got a little bit more comfortable. And yes, it's a scrimmage against one another, so you're only going to be able to take it to a certain level, so you have to take everything with a grain of salt. But I do think that you get to extract a couple things that you're excited about or that you want to see develop a little bit more. And the play of Jordan Bennington is one, the power play is another, and I love that we see some of these young guys like Mikola really step up and and show something. What did the coach see? You know, I mean, I, I thought it was a pre, uh, pretty even uh, matchup, you know, to be honest with you. A lot of good stuff out there on on both sides, guys. It was competitive for a inner squad scrimmage. It's not easy to be real competitive against your own teammates, but I thought it was pretty competitive. And uh, 
just a lot of good structure stuff, which was good to see. And, Michelle, you look at the way that the team is set up and structure is such a big part of what he does. And I, I want to see how a guy like Mike Hoffman fits into the, the structure, how Krug fits into the structure, because mm-hmm. they, Krug has been closer, obviously, playing in Boston to what the Blues do. But Mike Hoffman, even though he did play for Joel Quimble last year, hasn't really played on a team like this. Absolutely. And it's going to take a while for them to feel 100% comfortable mm-hmm. in the system and the style of play. Uh, but to Chief's point... It's really interesting that there aren't any real preseason games because you can't really take it to that level that you need to to feel totally 100% game ready. There's a certain level of physicality that's going to be lacking when you're going against your own mm-hmm. guys. Yeah, we saw Kyle Clifford a little bit last night, or we heard him, if you're listening, um, get in there with Marco Scandello. But I would imagine those guys are going to be really hungry to go yeah. out there and be unleashed. i got to be honest with you. When we have a normal preseason and a normal training camp NHL preseason games are a total eye roll for me I just okay fine they're playing because they don't play all of their guys you never it's not like the the third game of an NFL preseason where in the first half you see everybody playing there's never a preseason game in the NHL where you see everybody play so I'd rather have it be like this and even NFL third preseason games are still once you get to the second half 100% so I, I don't you're just praying in, yeah. in any preseason situation that no one gets hurt. Exactly. That's all you want. And that's why I prefer a situation like this, too, with the NHL, because they aren't going to be hitting like they... There's always going to be that kid that's trying to make a team for the stars. It's going to go after O'Reilly or whatever. Yeah. So you don't have that sort of a situation here. Meanwhile, the Blues are looking at a couple of really great power play opportunities, uh, first and second power play units, and... Barubi says that that's something that the other teams in the league are going to have to look out for. We've got a couple new players, different players than, than were on there last year. But, you know, Hoffman's been a good power play guy in the league. He's got a real good shot. You know, Kent, he makes plays, too, from that uh, side of the ice. Krug, obviously, he's been a real good PP guy in Boston. Uh, ran a real good power play there up top. He, you know, he moves the puck really well. He knows the next play right away. So, I think... You know, feeding Hoffman, feeding Perron, shooting and those guys one time at Pox, it, you know, it should be a good good power play, but we'll see how it goes. One of the things you have to do, though, Michelle, is you have to exhibit enough effort and you have to play hard enough in front of your opposition's net five-on-five five so that you're able to draw penalties, so that mm-hmm. you can get on the power play. You can't just stand around and hope to get other teams to commit penalties against you. You really have to play hard. Yeah, and you hope that you get in that position because it really does seem like this could be a lethal unit for the Blues. I think this could be at least from a depth of power play standpoint, this could be the best we've ever seen. Now, are you going to match the Hall of Famers when you had Anderson, Hall, Gretzky, McKinnis, Pronger on one power play? No. That's insane. That is (laughs) an insane collection of guys. That was pretty good. But in terms of having two units, I don't think the Blues, at least since I've been watching, have had a pair of power play units like they have the potential to have this year. So I cannot wait. Let's go. It's going to be awesome. By the way, Jordan Binnington, I thought, played really well last night. And somebody asked him yesterday about going back and what he took out of the bubble. Yeah, if we're looking back, I'm probably looking at the cup, the all-star game, 30 wins. You know, how how far our team has come over just a year and a half. And I'm living in the present moment and just working towards uh, being the best I can be, best goaltender and person I can be every day and and growing and uh, coming together as a group. It's a lot of fun. 
I love that attitude. <laughs> I love that. Because why would you want to go back and think about the bubble? Clearly the bubble did not go well for the Blues. No. But that's exact, That's a winning mentality. Instead of saying, hey, I'm I'm going to go back and think about the bubble and how I could draw my what was outside my window because I was so miserable and I didn't have the energy of the crowd. Yes, of course, you learn something. There's a lesson that came out of that. But I think the more important point is, hey, even though we're missing some key pieces from that Stanley Cup team, I'm looking at the general core in this locker room, and I know what we're capable of, and we're going to carry that into this season. All right, Michelle, I, uh, I'm going to be honest with you here. Okay. I am terrible Trust at me. living in the moment. Are I, you? I am really bad. I, I look back or I look forward, and I, I make an effort to live in the moment, but I'm terrible at it. How are you? Randy, they call it the present because it's a gift. I know. And I try. I make an effort, but I'm just bad at it. Okay, so let's dig a little deeper on this. What do you mean? You're constantly looking forward or you or you want to use the past as a reference point? Most of the time I'm looking forward, thinking about what's going to happen. And I do a good job, I think, of looking at the past as a reference point. I don't look back as much. Obviously, I have a pretty good memory, so I think yes, a lot about things you do, that happen. You do. But I, I think that's just the most important thing in life is to enjoy what's happening right now. And I, I, I could... I made a New Year's resolution several years ago to be better at that, and I try. I wish I could be like Phil Jackson, or I wish Phil Jackson could be my manager or coach. Or your Zen master. Yeah, because if you read 11 Rings, almost the whole book is about that, and I love it. We should should we do breathing exercises together before the show That's just to idea. center ourselves? Yeah. See, I'm I'm the opposite. I'm more in the in the moment. I'm not great at looking at the future because we don't know. We have mm-hmm. no idea. It's very hard for me to get excited about thinking. Oh, what would this be if the Cardinals did this? I'm like, I don't expect them to make any moves, and I can't predict the future. We have look at what happened this past year. We have no idea what's coming. None of us exactly. Know. And with the past. The, the philosophy that we should all take in life is you can't worry about what you can't control. And you can't control the past and you can't control the future. You can only control right now. You can only control your attitude and the way you react to things right now. Right. So I just need to be better at that. I'm just not great at it. In, in actual reference to what Jordan Bennington was just talking about, are you more, okay, I'm going to look back immediately at what happened with the Blues and that's going to be what I'm going to think about or are you thinking hey maybe Jordan Bennington if if X happens this is what we're going to get out of him are you more in the past or more in the present with him or excuse me more in the future I'm I'm more intrigued by the future and I'm glad that he's taking I'm like you I'm glad he's taking that approach I believe that that's the attitude that every athlete should take is reflect on the the great things that you've done don't work on the things that you're not good at but don't dwell on the things that did not go well. So I really do appreciate his attitude, but I'm more intrigued and more interested in and more confident about his future. I still think that he's talented enough to lead the Blues to another Stanley Cup. I know that there were a lot of extenuating circumstances last season. Even before the pandemic, some people had some concerns about Jordan Bennington. But that's because he was playing at such an unbelievably elite level on the highest and most pressurized stage that what we saw out of him in that Stanley Cup run 
it's never going to be able to be replicated. So I think we need to adjust our expectations and say, hey, this is still a really good yeah. goalie. This is a guy who you know can get to that level at any point. Are you going to get it consistently throughout an entire season? Probably not because that's unrealistic. Can he be a great goalie, a shutdown goalie for you? Most likely, yes. Yeah, and he actually was in the round robin. The rest of the team didn't play well, but he was phenomenal during that. Michelle, congratulations on your new defensive coordinator at the University of Illinois, Mizzou's Ryan Walters. First instinct when I read about this was, okay, okay, Bilma, you're going to steal a current and active defensive coordinator from the SEC and one that a lot of people would consider a school that's a rival to you. That's a pretty bold move. He must have offered him a pretty sweet package. But then Randy, I was like, okay, well, let's see. You know, I can't remember being super pumped about Mizzou's defense this past season. And when you realize that that unit gave up 32.3 points per game, I'm not super hyped, but I do think he's a good coach. And again, 2020 was a weird year, so I'm taking everything with a grain of salt. And hopefully he can bring this Illinois defense to where it needs to be. He's a really exactly what I said about Lovey Smith, by the way, (laughs) Ryan Walters is a really talented defensive coordinator. And I, I believe that he has a chance to be a great coach. Meanwhile, our friend Dave matter reports at stltoday.com and at uh, the St. Louis post dispatch that Mizzou defensive backs coach, David Gibbs is a possible internal candidate. Also a couple of former sec head coaches, Will Muschamp, whom Eli Drinkwitz has a good relationship with, and Derek Mason. And one name that I heard yesterday, and we talked to our friend Gary Pinkle last week, one name that I heard is his son-in-law, Alex Grinch, who is the defensive coordinator at the University of Oklahoma and obviously has a history with the Mizzou program, started his coaching career at Mizzou. So don't be surprised if Alex Grinch at least is talked about and talked to in regards to getting that job. That's intriguing, and he's got a pretty good... Uh, lifeline to somebody that he could talk to if he needs advice. Started his coaching career under Gary, and he's another... He's going to wind up being a college head coach. He's already been interviewed for a couple of jobs, so Alex Grinch would be a great name. That's everything that we know right now here on 101 ESPN. Coming up, we have a half a dozen wildcard games in the NFL this weekend. Which team is under the most pressure to win this weekend? That's next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. You will hear the Super Wild Card weekend in the NFL all weekend here on 101 ESPN Saturday. Starting at noon, you've got the Colts at the Bills, followed by the Rams at the Seahawks, and then Tampa Bay will visit the football team. On Sunday, (laughs) you've got the Ravens at Tennessee, you've got the Bears at New Orleans, and you've got Cleveland at Pittsburgh. So with that being said, Michelle, let's take a look at our NFL pressure index as we start the playoffs. What team or player or coach is under the most pressure in these playoffs? You go first. I have one team and I have one player for you, Randy. The first team that I look at when I think about pressure is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers because you know that you have the goat under center, but you only have a finite window to get this done with him. And if I'm Tom Brady... 
my legacy is cemented. But that is not the way that somebody like Tom Brady thinks. All he's thinking about right now is, I'm away from the Patriots. I'm away from Bill Belichick. This is probably my last opportunity to prove that it's me, that mm-hmm. I am the reason why, why that franchise had so much success. I'm the reason why they won so many Super Bowls. And I think if you're Bruce Arians and you're looking at this collection of talent, you realize, hey, this is our shot. This is our shot to get this done. I am on board with that, but I'm also going to point out that the Saints, in what is reportedly Drew Brees last year, also are under a tremendous amount of pressure, and they're playing Chicago. And not that Chicago doesn't have a real narrow window of opportunity with this team because a lot of questions about whether or not Mitchell Trubisky is going to come back, but the Saints have to win this game. And when you look, Michelle, at the last three years, the 2017 playoffs, you had the Minneapolis miracle, right? When uh, Stefan Diggs scored on the touchdown to win the game uh, against the Saints for Minnesota. The next year, you had the horrible call and the overtime field goal to give the Rams the victory in the NFC Championship game. And then last year, the Vikings won in overtime, 26-20, to to knock the Saints from the playoffs. They have been knocked from the playoffs on the last play of the game in three consecutive years tons of heartbreak and because of their window of opportunity being so low and because of their opposition I think the most pressure this weekend is on New Orleans a lot of pressure there if I'm looking at one player Randy that I think is really feeling the heat heading into this weekend it's Lamar Jackson Yes, he's an incredible player. Yes, the Ravens are rolling right now. We know that he's an MVP caliber player. But when you Google Lamar Jackson right now, every single headline is about the playoff narrative surrounding Lamar Jackson. Can he erase the storylines around him? Can he win the big one? Can he get it done? And if this has happened to you before, and this is the way that people are viewing you, if you're going to be the Clayton Kershaw type for a while, he's great, but he can't get it done in the postseason. If you lose this weekend, if you get bounced in the first round again, you get bounced out of the playoffs before really making a deep run, that is going to carry with you for a long time. Another guy who needs to win a playoff game, my opinion, is 32-year-old Russell Wilson. It's been a long time since Russell has taken his team to a Super Bowl. He was regarded as an MVP candidate at midseason and fell off. And he's a guy that we always say, Michelle, that come crunch time in the fourth quarter or in a playoff game, he's going to step up and be big time. And against the number one defense in the league and against what is Seattle's arch rival at home, granted, home field isn't much of a a deal this year because you don't have the home crowd, but I think Russell Wilson is under a lot of pressure uh, for Seattle too. If we're going to say that about Russell Wilson, I will see your Russell Wilson and I'll throw in Aaron Rodgers because you could say the same thing about a 37-year-old Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, I, I think for these playoffs, absolutely. But uh, just looking at these 12 teams in these six games, sure, I, I would. And there's pressure on Brady, right? Yes, absolutely. But yeah, if I'm looking at the playoff picture yeah, as a whole, Aaron Rodgers, a- everything no that yeah. you just said about Russell Wilson, I was thinking uh, check, it, check, check it, with Aaron Rodgers it too. And it's been a decade for him. Last time right. he was in a Super Bowl was 2010. I want to throw the Bears in there because they have played well under Mitch Trubisky, and the perception around the country seems to be that. There's no good reason for them to bring Mitch Trubisky back. They aren't going, this sounds kind of strange, next year 
they aren't going to have a guy that gives them a much better opportunity to win than Mitchell Trubisky. So their window of opportunity is really narrow in Chicago, too. Think about what you just said. They probably won't have anyone that will help them win more than Mitchell yeah. Trubisky. Is it going to be Nick Foles? I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's you're correct, but that's a pretty yeah. bleak set of circumstances, yeah, it is. you know, and, and no shade on Mitchell Trubisky, but we all know the truth. See, I'm looking at the Bears, and if I look at this collection of teams, the team that I think has the least amount of pressure on them mm-hmm. is the Cleveland Browns. Yes, it's the first time you've made the playoffs since 2002, but you've got a COVID outbreak going on right mm-hmm. now. Your head coach isn't going to be there. There's a lot of things working against them that I think their fan base and the general NFL fan would say they had they had a lot working against them. They're happy to be there, They're right? They're happy to be there. The expectation levels are really low for Cleveland, and I think the same about Chicago. Most people during the season never thought the Bears were going to make mm-hmm. the playoffs, and I think a lot of Bears fans are probably happy to be there with no expectations. And the way the way I set my team pressure index up was small window of opportunity and a game that you should win. If it's a game that you should win, then I don't think there is a tremendous or I think there is a tremendous amount of pressure like Tampa. I think Tampa Bay should beat the football team. I don't see how Cleveland beats Pittsburgh. I, I don't think there's a lot of pressure on Pittsburgh because I think that's a gimme for them. But then if we're applying that algorithm to each team, then shouldn't Pittsburgh be under the most pressure to win? Theoretically, yes. Because there's no way this Browns team, with everything that's, with the way it's constructed, with everything that they're dealing with right now, should beat this Steelers team. And they have a very finite window to win. I mean, you have a 38-year-old Ben Roethlisberger. How how much longer are you going to get Big Ben playing at an elite level? Right. And this is just... uh, Everything you say is 100% right. There's no doubt about it. But I just, I look at Pittsburgh not even trying last week. They didn't have the defensive player of the year in T.J. Watt. They didn't have K.M. Hayward, their best defensive lineman. They didn't have their best offensive lineman in Marquise Pouncey. And they didn't have Roethlisberger. And they lost (laughs) 24-22. So I just just don't see a way that Cleveland beat. I, I know this is the game that Cleveland wins now because I just said that. But, no, Randy, we already chose them to be our team, so we jinxed them. There's right. no way. I, I'm, I'm just looking at that game as if, if you were going to be show uh, up. like if, if I'm doing confidence points. We have 12 teams playing this weekend. If I'm going to do confidence points 1 to 12, my number one team, the team that I have the most confidence in, the, the team that gets 12 points is Pittsburgh. More than Buffalo. Wow. Yeah, I guess if I'm looking at the every matchup in every team, I would have to say Pittsburgh shows up and they have the best chance to win by just being there. <laughs> yeah, Let's throw one other one out there in terms of pressure because we look at uh, Tennessee as a pretty young team, but Ryan Tannehill's now on the other side of 30. But when you have a running back that runs like Derrick Henry does, what is your realistic window of opportunity? Unless he winds up being Jerome Bettis, he's probably going to have a five, six year career of being good. When you run the way he does, successfully as he does, as much as he does, it can't go on for very very much longer. In fact, nobody that's rushed for 2,000 yards has really done anything after their 2,000-yard season. Yeah, so while you've got him and while, while he's a monster on the field, there's your chance to win. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm trying. I'm looking at any other team that I might think. Dude, what about the Rams? I know that they have a lot of stuff... Uh, some issues, we'll say, yeah. but I would think 
any year that the Rams are in that building and any year that after the move to L.A. that they're even in the hunt or in the playoffs, they have pressure on them to win. I, th- I think their only pressure, real pressure comes from needing to get a championship for Aaron Donald, who's going to be 30 next year. We, we think about, boy, the kid Aaron Donald that we had here in St. Louis. But they're running out of runway on his career now. I think the pressure for that organization will come when they actually are able to put fans in the stands, when when you can actually attract people to games. But they're re- real young. They've got a great defense. And most people think, well, with Goff at quarterback or John Wolford this weekend, I don't think most people give them a chance anyway. I wonder if they feel pressure, though, after everything that happened with the move. You go to the Super Bowl, mm. you don't get it done. If they feel as if... Every, every organization wants to win a Super Bowl, but yeah. I wonder if they feel the pressure because winning a Super Bowl in L.A. would validate everything that they did. It's the only thing that will validate them in, the, in that market, too. Right. And that's why they gave Jalen Ramsey all the money and Goff all the money and Donald all the money. But that's giving those guys all the money is also the reason that they aren't going to win. So it's, there's, there's not much pressure on you when you have no chance to win because your owner is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that's... Well, good. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. Coming up, we're going to head to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Greg Amzinger, MLB Network, going to talk some baseball on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Let's head to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Our friend, Greg Amzinger of MLB Network, a product of the Lindenwood University, native St. Louis, and, and of course, the lead anchor at MLB Network. He's with us on uh, the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well, Randy. It is going to be 44 degrees and very sunny, and I'm going to play golf today. That's um, what I'm, I like to I'm hear. I'm going to tough it out. I'm going to tough it out. That, what's your limit in terms of temperature? Because if I can do 50 and sunny, or I can do 55 without sunny. What's your limit, your lower limit for playing? Uh, I, I'm a little crazy. I think it's more about wind than it is about temperature. If you're wearing the stocking cap to cover your ears, which I think is imperative, mm-hmm. I believe I can play in 37 degrees with wind under 10 miles an hour. If the wind is at 10 miles an hour or higher, then I can only do probably 45, 44 degrees. Today shouldn't be so windy. This is a it's scientific. I'm sorry, but we have to no. think about this. You, We're getting older. Can't get pneumonia because I'm playing golf, right? Right. And do you dress with layers? Many. Yes. I've got a great Under Armour like turtleneck that goes under the two fleeces I'll be wearing. I'm, I'm sure everyone listening right now is fascinated by this, but I, it, it, this is important, man. Like, it, If we can squeeze it around in January, come on. Oh, awesome. I'm stealing money. I'm stealing money. Hey, I, I got to ask you about uh, your friend Jonathan Mayo's piece up at MLB.com. He's listing five top Rookie of the Year candidates uh, in each league. Number one, as you might guess, in the American League is Randy Arozarena. And number three in the National League is Dylan Carlson. Would you be at all surprised if at the end of the twenty one or twenty twenty one season, if a couple of Cardinal product outfielders are the rookies of the year? Not at all. Both immensely talented. He didn't want to put Randy and Rose Rain at number one. I, I have. I don't want to say I bullied anybody because I'm a very <laughs> anti-bullying person, but I have bullied Jonathan Mayo on Randy Rosarena. Uh, the the amount of eye rolling he has given me uh, ever since the World Series ended, 
we do prospect shows together. We talk about the upcoming MLB draft all the time. Me, Jonathan Mayo, Harold Reynolds, Jim Callis, uh, who also does this stuff with prospects. And they are very like soft on Randy Arozarena. Uh, small sample size. You have to understand he's 25 years old. It's not like he's 19. I, mean, I don't understand. You do this for a living. The safest thing to do is put him number one. They put Randy Rosarena number one. He was on the biggest stage. He was the best player in the world. I love Mookie Betts. No joke, awesome player. Randy Rosarena, when he came up to the plate, we all stopped what we were doing. He was hitting third for a team in the World Series. And their teams had to pitch around him. The Dodgers wanted no part of him. I mean, when the World Series was over, I had to ask Cody Bellinger, who's celebrating he's on the field. Cody, I know you won the World Series, and we're going to talk a lot about that. What did you think of Randy Rosarena? And he enjoyed the question. He couldn't stop gushing over how great this guy was. So it's weird. I, I do believe guys can figure it out. I, I really do. I think Randy Rosarena got confidence, and he's such a physical specimen that it just spiraled out of control, and he was unstoppable. And, and I, what I'm hoping is what I'm hoping he doesn't get tweaked. Yasiel Puig was very similar when he broke into the big leagues and was an unstoppable uh, you know, wild horse. They tried to, to change his swing and to get him to hit the cutoff, man. And that's not what this guy does. Yasiel Puig started thinking a lot, and that just didn't work. So I'm hoping they leave Randy Rosarena alone. He should be the number one prospect in all of baseball because he is still up for the rookie of the year. He's going to, in my opinion, win in a landslide. And we had this segment the other day uh, on our show, and I go, give me the 100, let's say he plays 150 games. Okay, I I said he hit three twenty one with thirty eight home runs and one hundred eighteen RBIs, and everyone was like, "Whoa, <laughs> what timeout? Look what he did on the biggest stage against the best pitching." I believe in that, so I think he's he's a lock. Uh, Dylan Carlson struggled a lot last year, so to me, I feel like if you're going to have that kind of a year, you you got to hit the ground running. The first month or two of the season will be imperative for Dylan Carlson because he needs to get that mojo back. Okay, uh, little Kanye here. Michelle, I'm going to let you talk. <laughs> but to Greg, i got to point this out because it's th- this list is by Jonathan Mayo is interesting. For as much as franchises value prospects these days, in the American League, Randy Rosarino, uh, Jared Kanellick, and uh, Dane Dunning, three of the top five Rookie of the Year candidates, started with other organizations, were traded. And in the National League, uh, obviously, Sixto Sanchez started in the Phillies organization. Yeah. So four of the top ten that he has listed – got traded from other organizations. Well, that to me is currency front offices are willing to use to get players that they want. It's no longer 100 plus million dollar contracts. They're staying away from that. They're taking controllable players to get players that have already got contracts that maybe only have two, three or four years in some cases where a guy signed a seven-year contract, you're, you're not getting the term that holds franchises back. So currency now that teams are clearly willing to deal, look what the Padres have done um, with two different teams. It, it's young players. And unfortunately, I believe as exciting as this is to see what the Padres are doing, going all in, going for it, even though they didn't get rid of Mackenzie Gore and a couple other top prospects, they will look back and go, wow, can you believe we had this guy, this guy, this guy, this A.J. Preller has traded over 20 minor league prospects. He's going for it. This is something Alex Anthopoulos did when he was running the Toronto Blue Jays. 
and it could have cost him his job back then because the cupboard ended up being bare when they tried to go to the World Series and didn't work out for them. There's a balance to it. It's why the Cardinals organization is so beautifully operated. Um, you gotta, you gotta know that young players matter. Uh, and some of these guys are wheeling and dealing because their owners are going, I don't want these free agent contracts anymore. Greg, we are mining the internet for the Cardinals to be linked to any players. And when we see that they're connected to somebody, I find it hard to muster up any excitement because I really don't think they're going to be aggressive or make any moves. So I'm not I'm not putting any of my hope into that so that I won't be let down. And we know that they want to evaluate these young players and get them opportunities. And based on everything that we've heard from the Cardinals, they are banking on some of their players having bounce back years on improving what we saw to them in 2020. And we know that they dealt with a lot of extenuating circumstances so it's not unreasonable to think that that could be the case but if you're looking at the the cardinals the way they're currently constructed who's a player that you would look at that you would bet on to have a bounce back year Mm, that's a really good question uh i i think i still believe in harrison bader Uh, the talent is immense uh defensively a wizard and there is great value in a player that can cover the amount of ground he covers uh, for a team that the strength, let's we all know it, is pitching. Uh, the rotation and the bullpen, to me, going into opening day, is the best in the division. It's better than anything the Reds, the Cubs, the Pirates, you know, name your team, have. So I, I really think the Cardinals hope he does figure it out offensively. He's never going to be a top-of-the-order guy, unfortunately. But I do think he needs to give you something. This is his last year, in my opinion, to be, be an everyday big leaguer. He's going to have to prove himself this year. Last year when we had this conversa- conversation, Michelle, I was, I was really banking on Matt Carpenter being that X factor. And I really think because he wasn't at all, uh, I hate putting it all on one guy because the team didn't score any runs, and that's not his fault. But when you have a team that you know isn't going to be an offensive juggernaut going into the season, you need players that have been dominant uh, to get close to that. And he just didn't come back. It wasn't close. And I really don't think that Matt Carpenter is going to be an impact player for the St. Louis Cardinals. I think his best baseball is in the rearview mirror. I hate saying that. He's probably going to be a leadoff guy in the first month of the year because that's what they need. Um, but if we're looking for a bounce-back year, man, I, I, I really think Carlos Martinez, if he's used properly, could still figure it out. I know he's a very polarizing figure. Uh, in in the city of St. Louis. I, I start him. I put him in the rotation, especially if Adam Wainwright does not come back. And the way things are working, the Cardinals who do have young pitchers that could come up from the system. I love Gomber a lot. Uh, maybe you can flip Carlos Martinez as a rental. And maybe the Cardinals could be a team like the Tampa Bay Rays that are heading to the playoffs but are selling pieces to continue to do what I was saying originally is walk that fine line of replenishing your farm system while still being competitive. So maybe that's what Carlos Martinez could do for the Redbirds. But based on talent, what guys still have in the tank, I think uh, I'm going to go with Bader. I'm going to go with Carlos Martinez for that. Greg, last time we talked to you, we were talking about Yadier Molina and his options perhaps dwindling as he tries to settle on who his team's going to be this upcoming year. Ken Rosenthal reporting that the Angels are interested in Wilson Contreras of the Cubs. You said that you think that Yadi is going to end up in Philadelphia. Is that still today where you think he ends up? Yeah, I do, actually. I, I think the Philadelphia Phillies would love to bring back JT Realmuto. 
Uh, but they have such a glaring need in their bullpen. They are going to spend on at least three arms to replenish the worst bullpen we've seen in 90 years. That is a, that, that, It was such a painful thing to watch Joe Girardi come get the baseball and not have an answer. He had nothing coming out of that bullpen. Uh, the team is spending way too much money on the product to, to let every game slip away in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning. So they're, they're, they're going to focus their money on the bullpen, which eliminates them from JT Real Muto. They cannot have a glaring weakness where they had a strength in a division where every team is better. Every team in that division, it's the best division in baseball. The number one plan B, now that James McCann is gone, although I still am not buying it, James McCann is this lock everyday star catcher that the New York Mets pounced on for four years and over $40 million. I think I think Yadier Molina puts the Philadelphia Phillies over the top. I think having a, a manager that is a former catcher is something that he did value during his time working with Mike Matheny. Uh, that understanding is key, and Joe has always admired him, and this is a team that is ready to win right now. They would prefer to bring back JT Real Muto, but the bullpen is so historically bad, they have to spend resources there, and the best option, if that's not, not going to be Real Muto in Philadelphia, I think they're going to turn their attention to Yadier Molina when it's all said and done. Greg, before we let you go, Andrew Miller, who is an associate player rep and has a big voice in the Players Association, told Rick Hummel at the Post-Dispatch that, quote, the expectation is that we stick to the schedule that's out there. We got through the season last year. Other sports are successfully playing their seasons. Prepare to arrive February 17th and go from there. What are you hearing about a start time? Well, I'm still hearing that the discussions are ongoing uh, between the league office and the union. Uh, to me, in the opposite direction, it's just to move it back, to play it safe. We're going to have, I mean, government officials have said another spike post the holiday season, which is going to take weeks for that to actually show up uh, and rear its, uh, rear its ugly head. I don't think February 17th is a possibility. Uh, COVID is is going up. We're seeing some of the deadliest days ever, uh, and, and we haven't seen the spike yet. Uh, so I, what they're doing is talking about this. The union has to get on board. No one wants to shave games off the schedule, but that, if I had to tell you what's going to happen, I think that's what's going to happen. I think you're going to see the season delayed by a month. The number one priority is obviously safety, but they want to roll out with fans in stands everywhere in all 30 locations to do that. April 1st is too aggressive. They've got to get everyone on board for this. And obviously after the financial pitfalls of 2020, everyone wants things to go back to normal as fast as possible. It's an optimistic viewpoint that Andrew Miller has as a baseball player, as a, as a professional athlete, you should take that stance to get your body ready to go for February 17th and April 1st. There's no question that's the way you should take it. But behind the curtain, that does not look like a possibility, uh, regardless of what's happening in other leagues. They do not want empty ballparks for opening day. So uh, to be honest with all my St. Louis friends that are listening, prepare for a, a, a month delay. This I, I'm expecting May 1st start time. I'm entertained by watching MLB tonight. I, I can get my <laughs> baseball fix from you every night. Oh, thanks, man. I, I, I'm just goofing off on TV. Did you see? Did you see the bird segment we did the other day? Uh, it, it was funny. Dan and I were bird watching, and it was corny. I mean, really corny <laughs> and funny. And in commercial break, I did another. My next segment was with Bob Costas. I go, hey, check in with Bob. I go, hey, Bob, it's Greg. Can you hear me? He goes, 
yeah, I can hear you, Greg. And I go, did you happen to see the segment that I just did? And he goes, yeah, I did, Greg. And I'm like, man, I really wish you didn't see that. <laughs> so I'm still having fun, man. I still try to have fun despite the lack of news. Baseball year-round in my world, you know that. Absolutely. Great talking to you, sir. Thank you very much. We'll do it again next week, and I'm sure we'll communicate before then. Okay, you guys are the best. Hey, hit him well today. I'll try through all my layers. <laughs> See you later. Take care. Greg Amzinger, MLB Network on 101 ESPN. You guys love golf so much because, well, I'm not a great golfer. My, the best part of my golf game is driving the cart and drinking the beer. What's you wrong know? with that? That's the best part of my game. I go because I like the company and because it's it's fun to play, not because I'm any good. <laughs> but you guys are nuts that it could be sub-40s out there and you're going outside to play golf. Uh, texture. From the 573, I got out three times this week, and I live south of St. Louis, just to have, a, have just have to have an enclosure for your cart and a good heater. Doesn't matter how cold it is. There you go. So, And it's been in the 30s this week. 30s today. So that's a little bit below my threshold. Yeah. I, if it's below 60, I'm not even <laughs> pretending I'm going to go. Take it or leave it. Coming your way next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Great to have you with us on Character and Smallman on 101 ESPN. And we do welcome your text to the Air Comfort Service text line 657804. Tioli and Michelle, still great stories coming out if you really want a movie about the Washington football team and the three minority owners of the team that have filed a lawsuit against Dan Snyder because they desire to jointly sell their stake in the team. He says, no, I have right of first refusal. Within the lawsuit, it says that Snyder's tactics are, quote, more reflective of a gangster than an NFL owner, unquote. Take it or leave it. You knew a long time ago that NFL owners acted like gangsters. Oh, take it. Many, <laughs> many years ago. This is not new information. No, this isn't. Uh, just the fact that it shows up on the public record, and it will again. But this is nothing that any St. Louis football fan should be shocked by. No. They're all gangsters. I, w- I would think that the judge who or whoever has to make the decision on this would say, yeah, you, we know. You knew that getting involved. <laughs> Can a judge say, well, duh. I wish that that could be the the official ruling, duh. Of course. But, yeah, you're going to have to say whatever you need to to get out of that marriage. I'm sure that's a breakup that they want to settle immediately. Right. It's amazing. What a mess. What a mess. Randy, we were talking a few segments ago about teams and or players that have a lot of pressure on them as the NFL playoffs open up. We talked about Big Ben. We talked about Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady. Drew Brees, aging quarterbacks. Big Ben is 38. Aaron Rodgers is 37. Let's say they go the Tom Brady route and they play into their early 40s. They go the Tom Brady route and play into their early 40s. Okay. So we know that they have maybe four, maybe five years if they're lucky left in their career, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah. Take it or leave it. Neither one wins another Super Bowl. Ooh, I like this a lot. And I'm going to... I'm going to take that. I'm going to take it, too. As much as I want it to be Aaron Rodgers and the Packers mm-hmm. this year, I don't know if they can beat the Chiefs. If it comes down to that, would you would you bet against Patrick Mahomes no, and the Chiefs? No, you, I'm you not going go to. you got to go with Patrick Mahomes. So many things have to go right 
for you to win a Super Bowl. And I'm, I would love to see Aaron Rodgers win another one. I, I'm a big Mike Tomlin person. I would love to see him be able to do it again for Pittsburgh. But I don't know. If they're lucky, they'll go the Tom Brady route. Right. I don't know how many years they really have left. And another take it or leave it. Take it or leave it. This might be Aaron Rodgers' last shot this season. I'm going to leave that. Because I think they'll actually improve the talent around him for next season. You hope so, especially, you know, as they did not give him weapons yeah. through the draft this year. But so many things happen. Injuries pop up. We, we just don't know the way that the, the cookie's going to crumble. And no. so you think about everything having to fall into place at the right time. I wonder if this is his last opportunity. It is interesting, though, Michelle, when you look at it, here you have Rodgers, a 37-year-old Pac-12 quarterback, and another 37-year-old Pac-12 quarterback, John Elway, was able to win a Super Bowl at the age of 37 and then won at 38 as well. So, yes, it's going to happen then. (laughs) Your text, here's Tanner. Well, guys, yesterday we saw Tory Krug take a shot that got deflected in by Robert Thomas, I think in like the first minute of the scrimmage. Take it or leave it, Tory Krug and Colton Preco will have 10 or more goals each. Take it. Take it. Yeah. I hope that Pareko feels unleashed. I hope we see him firing it in there all the time. I think that's a lock. Ten goals each for those guys. From the 3-1. But we're only playing 56 games. So 10 pro-rated. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) Important distinction. Yeah. From the 3-1-4, take it or leave it since Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers both have the week off in Wild Card Weekend. We'll see a new State Farm commercial during the Super Bowl. I'll take it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Great call. They're they're resting their bodies and they're they're cashing those checks. Yeah, definitely. From the six one eight, take it or leave it. Since the Phillies need a bullpen piece, the Card- Cardinals should trade one of their arms for some prospects. No, because inevitably you're going to have people get hurt. And you don't know what you're going to have really in Jordan Hicks. As Dan mentioned yesterday, you hope that he can ascend during the course of the season. But you always have people getting hurt, and now you always have people getting COVID. So I don't think that you can count on having all those arms all season long. No, you never can. You have to assume that someone's going to get hurt, unfortunately, at some point. Um, That is an interesting thought, though. I wonder if the Cardinals are eyeing a team, if there's a specific team, whether it's the Phillies or whomever, that they say, okay, maybe as this plays out, we're we're being patient, we're lying away, but we know that this is a surplus for us and this is a specific need for them if they're willing to make a move like that this year. I am in the camp of, I I would be shocked if they really do anything of any significance. So that's why I'm going to leave it. But I wonder if there is a specific team with a need, whether it's the Phillies or not, that the Cardinals might be like, all right, let's test the waters. Let's call them and let's see if we can get something done. There might be. I I would think that what you'd want to find if you were the Cardinals is a franchise that has a wealth of young middle infielders. That's where the Cardinals seem to have the least amount of talent within their system and their top 30 prospects. They've got young outfielders. They've got young pitchers. They've got young corner infielders, tons of young corner infielders, but they don't have the the hot shot second base and shortstop prospects that you'd like to have. From the 618, take it or leave it, we will see someone rush for 200 yards in a playoff game this weekend. Let me uh, take a quick look here. And is there a defense that could allow 200 yards in an offense? Yes. 
J.K. Dobbins, Ravens. That's my pick. I'm going to take it. Okay. I'm with you. I'll take it. Well, we've seen the Ravens run all over teams before. I could, yeah. I could absolutely see it. Thank you, Tanner. Thank you. And thanks for your texts to the Air Comfort text line, 65780. The Blues gave us an idea of what their power play units will look like. Any surprises last night with what we saw? That's next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. <laughs> Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Michelle, last night, as the Blues played the Blues in their scrimmage, the number one power play unit had Ryan O'Reilly with David Perron and Braden Shen, and Mike Hoffman and Tori Krug were back on the points. And then the second unit had Schwartz with Bozak, along with Robert Thomas, Dunn, and Pareko. Any major surprises for you among that group? The only thing I'm surprised about is how excited I am to watch these two units get out there and do the power play. Yeah, it's it's going to be fun. I, I would think that at some point you're going to have Justin Falk on one of the units because they brought him here because he's a power play specialist. That was the only surprise for me that Falk wasn't back there. But that tells you how much talent they have because Dunn and Pareko are fine on the points. Thomas, Bozak, and Schwartz, you've got people that will go to the net. You've got a sharpshooter that uh, shares the puck in, in Schwartz. And on the number one unit, obviously, O'Reilly is one of the real good power play performers in the league. Perron was the Blues' best power play goal scorer last year. And then Schenner, Hoffman, and Hoffman's a great power play performer. And Krug was second in the league last year in power play points. So that's pretty cool. And by the way, last year's group was third in the league, and they've added some reinforcements. Also, go ahead. Do you think this is the most dangerous power play group in the league? It very easily could be. I think when you when you get look at just the fact that you have Drysidle and uh, McKin uh, and McDavid in uh, Edmonton, and you have the group in Colorado, you've got some pretty tough ones. And when Pittsburgh is healthy, just having Crosby and Malkin in and of themselves. But in terms of having the depth of quality players, to be able to put Pareko and Dunn on the points on your second power play, it's pretty strong. Really strong. Greg Wyshynski of ESPN.com listed his top 100 players in the NHL this season, Michelle. And his Blues in the top 100, Brian O'Reilly is the 44th best player in the league. Tory Krug, number 63. Vladimir Tarasenko, number 72. And Jordan Biddington, number 82. I, I know that we're both surprised by one thing there. And that's Vladimir Tarasenko. Yeah, being at 72. Coming in at number 72. I know the logic behind it. I understand Vladimir Tarasenko and what a weapon he is. And when he is right, how he can take over a game and just be completely dominant. From a skill set standpoint, he is rare. He's a rare, rare player. However, when's the last time that we saw that out of him? Right. When's, sure. when's the last time we saw the Vladimir Tarasenko that we're talking about? And he has another injury that he's rehabbing from. I I understand that he has been that player, but I just don't know if he can be that player ever again. That's why I was surprised to see him on this list. No, that's a real concern. Now, let's make the point here that Greg is predicting this year's top 100 players. All due respect, we love Greg Wyshynski, friend of the, friend of the show. 
but how can you not have Colton Pareko when you're projecting the top 100 players in the league this year? A guy who's going to ascend in terms of minutes, yeah. in terms of, of special teams play. He was the best defensive player in the playoffs two years ago. He had a great all-around game. And it, you have to be able to find a place for Colton Pareko in your top 100 as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I'm surprised that he wasn't on the list in place of Vladdy. I'm surprised that Vladdy, even just given the injury, would even be considered. And especially right at 72. Yes, ahead of Bennington. Yeah, when you look at some of the people that are behind him, Max Pacioretty, who is healthy and had a really good year for Vegas last year, and they've got a talented group. He was behind Vladimir Tarasenko. Oliver ekman Larson is one of the best young defensive. Well, he's not young anymore, but uh, he's a guy that on the right team could be a Norris Trophy candidate. Blake Wheeler with Winnipeg is behind Tarasenko, and we won't see Tarasenko for two months. That's the issue. If if Vladdy was healthy, we would project him as a top 10 player. But if you aren't going to see him for two months of a four-month season, it's hard to project him, in my mind, to be a top 100. Coming off another sur- a surgery. Yeah, and I hope he is, by the way. hope he's the best player in the playoffs. So do I. I I dream of a day when the Blues are in the playoffs again and Vladimir Tarasenko owns one game where he just comes out like the Winter Classic where he cannot be stopped. And we look at that and we say, that's we call it the Vladdy game. Like, that's the Vladimir right. Tarasenko game. I hope that that happens. I hope that everything he said when he was talking about not being named the captain, about how he's working out and rehabbing because a lot of people think that he can't come back and be the player he once was, and he's got a job to do to prove everybody wrong. I hope that happens. However, I've seen the way that injuries, uh, especially repeated injuries in one area, can affect a player of a certain age. And while I would love that to happen for, for Vladdy, I'm not going to put my eggs in that basket. Remember a few years ago when the Blues went east and he had a game where he went through pretty much every Rangers player to score a one-handed goal and then the next game in New Jersey did virtually the same thing. And those were physical gifts and it, it came because he was a powerful 220-pound skilled player. I'm like you. I, I, I just don't see, and I hope but I don't see how a player comes back from the severity of the injuries that he's dealing with to be that guy. Can he be a 20, 25 goal guy? I hope so. But do I see him as a 37, 38, 39 goal guy anymore? I just don't see it. I'm glad the Blues and he are taking their time trying to rehabilitate this thing. But shoulders are the most dicey injury in all of sports. And it's hard to come back from shoulder injuries. More than an ACL? I think so now. Look at a guy like Mark Mulder. They could never fix that. Look at uh, the, the shoulder injuries with pitchers. And Alexander Steen was able to come back and play. Never the same player mm-hmm. after he had his shoulder issues. Zach Sanford, we hope that he's able to become the player that we thought he would. But it seems like as hockey players, when they miss significant time with shoulder injuries, they're just never the same again. And I like the way that this Blues team is currently constructed. And we have confidence in them right now. The, the Blues and fans of the team are not saying, well, they're good, but just wait till Vladdy comes back. Vladdy's, a healthy Vladdy will put them over the top, perhaps, but I like their chances right now without him. And if he does come back and he can make an impact, then watch out. And two weeks ago, we were hoping, okay, let's hope Thomas ascends to the level that he we hope he can be. Or if it's not him, maybe Clem Costin comes back from the KHL, which he's not going to do, it looks like. Or maybe Kairou can step up. But then they go out and sign Mike Hoffman. And you say, wow, you got legitimate top six forwards across the board now. Right. 
No, the, the organization has done a great job. That's Michelle. I'm Randy, and that is today's Fresh Take on 101 ESPN. The Cardinals have some players that are in contract years that need to step up, but will they? That's next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Well, the Cardinals need to have some bounce-back performances if they are going to be able to repeat as National League Central champions in 2021. Obviously, at the moment, they don't have Yadier Molina or Adam Wainwright on the roster. So some players that did not have really good years in 2020 are going, Michelle, to need to rebound in 2021. Absolutely. And there's a lot of candidates on, <laughs> on this roster right now to bounce back. Is there anyone specific that you've circled? I think the guy that needs to bounce back and the Cardinals need to let him bounce back is Jack Flaherty because they didn't allow him to be Jack Flaherty after the COVID outbreak last year. Until we got to the playoffs, he really didn't get an opportunity. But Jack Flaherty is not a guy with a 4.91 ERA. That's just not the pitcher he is. His strikeouts to walks was fine. His Ks per nine were 10.9. So he had a lot of good elements. But I think this year he'll again be, hopefully we don't have another COVID shutdown, but I think he'll be a number one, number one. I think he'll be a front of the legitimate front of the rotation guy. How about you? That's a great one. When I look at players who didn't really live up to expectations last year for the Cardinals, there's a lot of them, but I also throw a lot of seasons out. And I know that probably seems unfair, but there's one in particular that I look at and I think I'm going to take what happened in 2020 and I can't even really analyze it. So I'm not going to even try. And I'm just going to look forward based on the totality of the player, the, the complete body of work. And for me, that's Paul DeYoung. Here's a guy that we thought could be the Cardinals MVP heading into the 2020 season. We knew Paul Goldschmidt was going to be consistent, but if Paul DeYoung could put it together for an entire season, if we didn't see any of that fatigue and he could be the hitter that the Cardinals needed him to, he could completely change the way that we view the Cardinals offense and he had a strong spring training. He came out and looked good at the beginning of the season and then he got COVID. And I think he Lane Thomas, there's a few guys that really, really, I think it, the COVID impacted them more than others. And we saw it physically with Paul DeYoung. He just did not seem like the same player that he was at the beginning of the season after that diagnosis. And so I look at him and I think if he could be healthy for an entire season, if we could see more power out of him, if he could lower his strikeout rate, there's just a lot of things that I look at with Paul DeYoung that I think not only is he capable of, but he probably will attain in 2021. And what a difference maker that could be for the Cardinals. Right. He hit 30 home runs a couple of years ago. And he's absolutely capable of being an impact hitter. I think if he's out of the top four, I, I don't think that at his best, DeYoung is going to be a guy where you say, okay, that's a number four hitter for a championship team. But down in the lineup, his offensive abilities are great. Now, another guy I know that you could see bouncing back, really has to bounce back now from two down years in a row. Yes, we actually talked to Greg Amzinger about this early in the season. Oh, is that who we were talking about? Yeah. Okay, I thought so. Yeah, so we had Greg Amzinger on earlier in the show, and I asked him this. I said, hey, it seems like the Cardinals aren't really going to make a lot of moves, and it feels like they're banking on guys to have bounce-back seasons. And I asked him to look at the roster and pick one person that he's really confident in that can ascend in 2021, and here's what Greg had to say. I still believe in Harrison Bader. Uh, the talent is immense. Uh, defensively a wizard, and there is great value in a player that can cover the amount of ground he covers, 
uh, for a team that the strength, let's we all know it, is pitching. Uh, the rotation and the bullpen, to me, going into opening day. So I, I really think the Cardinals hope he does figure it out offensively. He's never going to be a top-of-the-order guy, unfortunately. But I do think he needs to give you something. This is his last year, in my opinion, to be, be an everyday big leaguer. A couple of years ago, he played in 138 games, had uh, 427 plate appearances. And, Michelle, this is a guy that had 32 extra base hits in those times. And he had a 756 OPS. But then the year after that, 2019, hits 205 with a 314 on base. And then last year, hits 226 with a 336 on base. Even though his OPS last year was 779, he struck out way too much. But is the ability there, if he can get... If he can lay off that slider from a right-handed pitcher, is the ability there? Yes, it is. Absolutely. And again, think about how much more confident we would be in the Cardinals and in this group of players if you could depend on Harrison Bader to at least improve a little bit offensively because as Greg mentioned you know he's going to give you elite defense you know the speed is there there's a lot of things that he's already proven that are weapons in his toolbox we just are looking at the offensive production or lack thereof and if he could get that even a little if he could even get that to moderate to to just hey we can rely on you to be a little bit more consistent Mm -hmm. there I think that that could change a lot for the Cardinals last year Harrison Bader stepped to the plate 125 times he struck out 40 So, and I don't know if the Cardinals are, if they care about that at all. If when a player makes it out for them, for me, it matters whether he strikes out or not for them. I don't know if it does matter whether he strikes out or grounds out, but it seems like you have a chance to get a hit if you get your bat on the ball, Mm -hmm. but he has to cut down on the strikeouts, Mm -hmm. but I, I think he's capable. Now, another guy that Greg talked about, and I'm kind of in the same boat here as Greg Amzinger, and that is Matt Carpenter. I really don't think that Matt Carpenter is going to be an impact player for the St. Louis Cardinals. I think his best baseball is in the rearview mirror. I hate saying that. He's probably going to be a leadoff guy in the first month of the year because that's what they need. And, yeah, they don't really have a leadoff guy, but he's 35 years old and it's been a long time since he's been an impact player. Might he be able to draw some walks and get back to that spot where he can be a good on-base guy? I don't know if he's ever going to be the doubles guy anymore, but when he swings the bat, he tries to pull the ball. And Michelle, I think now, with as hard as pitchers throw, it seems to me that Carpenter, because his bat has slowed down, he's swinging when the ball is released. He doesn't have quick hands anymore. And what's that going to cause you to do when you're ahead, when you're in front, you're going to pull the ball into that shift. And that's what he does. It would be great if we could see Matt Carpenter have a bounce back year and similar to what we saw out of Dexter Feller, but the circumstances were different. They were dealing Mm -hmm. with different issues. And I don't know if we have seen Matt Carpenter just hit that point in his career where physically you can't, replicate what you've done before however i am intrigued to see him back in the leadoff spot because historically that's where he's had his best production so maybe that's something that is a comfort for him maybe it's kind of a security Mm -hmm. blanket and he can get back into that spot and find some sort of a groove but he's he's not the player that i would put my money on to have a bounce back year and 
we talk about guys being in a contract year and being motivated. Nobody's more motivated on a regular basis or works harder than Matt Carpenter. He doesn't need to be looking at a contract year to be motivated. Oh, absolutely not. I'm not concerned about him working enough. I'm concerned about him working too much yeah, right. <laughs> and and perhaps taking it a little too far. Um, and that's why I think it's a little bit more concerning to me because it's not like other players where I can look at it and say, okay, well, if mentally he could get there or if he could focus a little bit more, maybe he could put it all together. Or I haven't seen it out of him before, so maybe the potential is there for him to take the next step. We've seen it before. We know he's working hard. We know in the offseason he's putting in as much work as anybody yeah. to try to improve upon himself. But sometimes a player just gets to a certain point where you don't have it anymore. One player who I believe is going to take the next step, but sadly and unfortunately it's going to be a downward step towards the basement, is Dexter Fowler. I, I just don't see him bouncing back. Last year he had a 706 OPS at the age of 34. He is what he is. And again, he's another guy that works hard and does the right things in preparing, but Father Time has caught up to him. That's not the player that I thought you were going to say when you said you thought he might take a step back. Because we talked about this with Greg, too. And one person that the Cardinals, I don't even know how to set this up because I, I feel like we say this every year, that we're waiting for this person to put it all together. But here's someone else, Greg said, may be able to do that for the Cardinals. I, I really think Carlos Martinez, if he's used properly, could still figure it out. I know he's a very polarizing figure uh, in, in the city of St. Louis. I, I start him. I put him in the rotation, especially if Adam Wainwright does not come back. I would not. I would not either. As a matter of fact, with the questions about Hicks, which I think are legit, until Jordan Hicks is ready, let him close. But we talked about the starting rotation yesterday or the day before, and I'm not going to put Carlos Martinez ahead of Flaherty, KK, Michaelis, Gomber, or Reyes. And if you bring KK back after this year, at least three of those, and you have Michael is under contract, you're probably looking at those guys with Dakota Hudson as your future. There is no future with Carlos Martinez in your starting rotation. Heading into the 2020 season, I was very encouraged by Carlos Martinez. I'll never forget, we were at the winter warm-up, mm-hmm. Brandy, and we sat in in his media session, and he seemed like a different player. He seemed so focused. He talked about the work that he had put in. in the off- There's just something about his demeanor that was different. He seemed like an adult. He seemed as if he really understood the opportunity before him and the responsibility that he had to deliver for the Cardinals. And I... I went into that season, and when they said, hey, he's earned this spot, this is what we told him, this is the conversation that we had with him, he wants to be a starter, he put in the work, he's earned this. But then here we are again, having the same conversations about Carlos Martinez that we've had for many years. And I'm to the point where I look at Alex Reyes and I say, how has he not earned this opportunity? He hasn't dealt with half the stuff that you've dealt with with Carlos Martinez. He's had some injuries. Yes, he punched the wall, but that was out of frustration. Mm And I would look at him and say, this is somebody that has earned this opportunity. And if not now, when? This is somebody that I would rather get a look at. And if I'm the Cardinals, I never want to have to rely on Carlos Martinez again. No. I, I, what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over mm-hmm. and over and expecting a different result. I'm not expecting no. a different result. Would I love for him to be an elite pitcher? Of course. Does he have the talent to do it? Yeah, it's there. We've, we've seen it in flashes. Have we seen it consistently? No. So I'm not going to bank on it. So to recap, 
it, I, I feel good about Flaherty. KK is still a question mark. We don't know if the league will catch up with him. Gomber is certainly a question mark. Michaelis is coming back off of arm surgery. And Reyes is a question mark. Hicks is a question mark. Gallegos, pretty darn good. The two left-handers, question marks. The outfield, I hope that Dylan Carlson turns into a player. Question mark. Question mark. Harrison Bader, Tyler O'Neill, Dexter Fowler, either question mark or you put a minus next to their name. On the infield, we, we hope, and I think we both expect DeYoung to bounce back. Carpenter, I put a, a minus next to his name. Edmund, question mark. Goldie, okay, plus. that's mm-hmm. Goldie's a guy that you're locked in on. He's going to be good. Andrew Kisner, whoever the other catcher is, Matt Wieters, question mark or minus. The margin for error in terms of Cardinal success for 2021 is extraordinarily thin. So we have two guys that we feel very confident in and go, well, I'll say three. Yeah. What? Flaherty, DeYoung, Goldie. Flaherty, DeYoung, Goldie. And I was going to say feel confident in DeYoung. That's still a question mark. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a confidence, but with a little trepidation. Yeah, we don't feel as good about our shortstop situation as Cleveland feels about theirs. Correct. Paul DeYoung has it, but can you put it together for an entire season? That's my question. And and, like we said, hopefully DeYoung will step up. Hopefully Harrison Bader will bounce back. But we're dealing with a lot of hope here if the Cardinals are going to succeed. We're hoping that the rest of the division continues (laughs) to to progress. Come on, Angels. Trade for Wilson Contreras. (laughs) Coming up, we got the fight on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Carriker and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Carriker and Smallman here on 101 ESPN. It's 8.36. Let's jump right into the fight here. Our challenger today is Tyler. Tyler will be competing against Randy. Good morning, Tyler. Good morning, Michelle. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. How's your day so far? Going pretty good. Just got to work. Oh, nice. All right. So you're taking a little early break so you can compete in the fight? Yes, (laughs) ma'am. I love it. Okay, well, let's jump into question number one. Who has won the most NFL MVPs? Is it Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, or Brett Favre? Peyton Manning. Tyler, who is the all-time leader in blocks in NBA history? Is it Shaquille O'Neal, Tim Duncan, or Hakeem Olajuwon? I got to go with Hakeem. Question number three for you, Tyler. Lamar Jackson turns 25 today. Happy birthday to Lamar. Where did he play his college football? Was it Louisville? Louisville. All right, Tyler. I love it. And last one, Tyler. Who was the last Cardinals player to have at least 600 at-bats in a season and not hit a home run? Was it Vince Coleman, Ozzie Smith, or Lou Brock? (sighs) Got to go with the Wizard, Oz. All right. Let's check the score here. Randy is on his way in. Tyler, are you a Lamar fan? Are you a Ravens fan? Because you seem to know that answer pretty quickly. Uh, Not really. I just remember that Louisville uh, Clemson game a couple years back. Well, who is your team? Uh, I don't really have a team. Since the Rams left, uh, I was always a Peyton Manning guy, and uh, I like seeing lockout in Denver, so I'd say the Broncos probably. Nice. Yeah, Randy and I have been trying to adopt a team. We went with the Dolphins. They didn't make the playoffs. We went with the Browns. They got a (laughs) COVID outbreak. (laughs) Not going so well for us. Uh, Randy, please say good morning to Tyler. Tyler, how are you this morning? 
I'm doing well. How are you, Randy? Doing great. Thanks for listening. Thanks for playing. We appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. Question number one, Randy. Mm-hmm. Who has won the most NFL MVPs? The player that has won the most NFL MVP awards. Uh, Favre won three. And I don't know that anybody has won more than three. I don't think Manning ever won four. So I'll go with Brett Favre winning three. Wow. <laughs> uh, Randy, who is the all-time leader in blocks in NBA history? Blocked shots, NBA history. I'll do the lifeline here. Was it Shaquille O'Neal, Tim Duncan, or Hakeem Olajuwon? I am going to to go with Hakeem the Dream. Randy Lamar Jackson, don't know if we know this. He turns 25 today. Oh, good. Happy birthday, Lamar. Happy HBD to Lamar. Where did he play college football? Louisville. And Randy, who was the last Cardinals player to have at least 600 at-bats in a season and not hit a home run? 600 at-bats. Wow, that's a lot. 600 at-bats and zero home runs. Um, We're going to have to go way back here. Um, I will say, I don't think Ozzy ever had a year where he hit zero, but that would be a logical choice. Um, And since I don't have a lifeline, maybe he didn't. Um... Yeah, I'll, I'll just go Ozzy. This was a great fight. But we do have a champion. We have a winner and new champion, Average Joe Listener. Brought to you by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Your best choice for quality tires and expert auto service. Dobbs. Tyler, you better walk a little taller at work today. Congratulations. <laughs> you have beat Randy. It was a really close fight. You edged him out, though. Four to three. You got all four correct. Let's awesome. run through our answers. So the player who has won the most NFL MVPs is Peyton Manning. He's won five times. Mm. The all-time leader in blocks in the NBA is Akeem Olajuwon, 3,830. Lamar Jackson did play his college football at Louisville 2015 to 2017. And the last Cardinals player to have at least 600 at-bats in a season and not hit a home run was Ozzie Smith. That was back in 1987. Congratulations, Tyler. We will speak to you tomorrow. Awesome. Thank you, guys. You have a great rest of your morning. Thanks, Tyler. You too. Take care. Tyler with us on 101 ESPN. Coming up next, as we roll on, on Carriker and Smallman, The Angels are interested in trading for Wilson Contreras. Does that put Yadier Molina in a tough situation in terms of trying to find a team to bid against the Cardinals? That's next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Carriker and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. MLB.com reports that new Angels general manager Perry Manassian is looking for ways to improve his team. And one of the thoughts that they have with Joe Madden having a history with Wilson Contreras of the Cubs is to make a deal for Wilson Contreras. Obviously, uh, until Madden joined the Angels, Contreras had spent his entire career playing for Joe Madden. And Ken Rosenthal wrote that Madden was a strong advocate for Contreras in Chicago and that his current team is showing interest in inquiring in acquiring Wilson Contreras. So if Contreras would wind up, Michelle, with the Angels, 
that would mean that one of the teams that Yadier Molina said had interest in him would have a catcher, just like we have seen with the Mets, like we have seen with the Padres, and we have seen with the Yankees in keeping uh, their catcher, Gary Sanchez. Yeah, his options seem to be dwindling as time goes on. And a lot of people that we've spoken with on the show, Randy, have basically said it's a foregone conclusion that he's coming back to the Cardinals. But I think those of us who have paid really close attention to this team and to Yachty and his personality and his career know that when he has his brother on our airwaves coming out and talking about his value and we're reading in The Athletic, Mark Saxon had the report that Yachty was, to paraphrase, offended by the offer that the Cardinals presented him. We know the pride that is there for Yachty or Molina and we know the confidence that he has in his abilities, even right now. And we know that he's certainly going to be looking at other options. And as long as other teams are still on the table, I'm not convinced that he's in a corner and that he's just going to come back to St. Louis because he may be a little upset with the way that the Cardinals uh, didn't present him with the offer that he thought was appropriate. And if he feels in any way disrespected, I could see him wanting to go elsewhere. And he could go elsewhere for less money. We still haven't heard the natural connection to the White Sox, which if he says, okay, I'm not going to play for the Cardinals for that amount of money, but I would pay for play for the White Sox for that amount of money. They did lose James McCann, mm-hmm. who played a lot for them last year, and they still have Yasmani Grandal, who could be a DH, or they could split time, or Grandal could move over to first when Abreu DHs, whatever they want to do there. And of course, one of the other possibilities, and Greg Amzinger brought it up last week, he said that he thinks that Yachty was going to wind up with Philly. And today, Michelle asked Greg Amzinger if he still felt that way. I think I think Yachty or Molina puts the Philadelphia Phillies over the top. I think having a, a manager that is a former catcher is something that he did value during his time working with Mike Mazzini. Uh, that understanding is key, and Joe has always admired him. And this is a team that is ready to win right now. They would prefer to bring back JT Real Muto, but the bullpen is so historically bad, they have to spend resources there. And the best option, if that's not, if it's not going to be Real Muto in Philadelphia, I think they're going to turn their attention to Yadier Molina when it's all said and done. I, I can totally see that. But I wonder where JT Real Muto winds up then. Because if Yadi winds up there, not that he would care about painting Real Muto into a corner, no. but does he go to. The Nationals, I just don't know what his options are. And I I would think, Michelle, that anybody who's – if there's more than one team that has interest in JT Real Muto, I I would think that Yachty's a fallback. Yes, I would imagine that the Real Muto domino would fall before Yachty. Mm -hmm. And then whatever other teams were out there would say, okay, now let's – pursue Yachty a little bit more heavily but that was my first inclination after hearing Greg talk is to think maybe he winds up with the Nationals because we know that that's a team that's looking for catching help and that was a team that was mentioned in the Yachty or Molina conversations but if I'm Yachty and I'm looking at potentially going to the Phillies which is a new team a team that clearly I would go there and I would command a certain level of respect. I'm not in any way saying that he's not respected in St. Louis. He's an icon here. He knows that. But sometimes at a certain point in your career, having it from an outside source feels different. You Mm -hmm. know that the people in St. Louis, even if St. Louis offered him a ridiculous contract, that does not mean that it's a sign of disrespect, but that's not how the player is going to receive it. That's not the way 
that the ego of a professional athlete works. And maybe even if it's less money, you're looking at a situation where you're having an, an organization with a lot of young players tell you how exciting you are and how great you are and how you could improve their team. And it's a new challenge for a player like Yachty or Molina. But I'm with you on the White Sox. If I'm Yachty, I'm looking at how fun that team is. I'm looking at the collection of talent they have. I'm looking at Tony La Russa, who those two are two peas in a pod mm-hmm. when it comes to competitive fire. I know that the type of energy and relentless pursuit of greatness that Tony's going to bring in on a day-to-day basis. And I'm looking at myself, not only can I go there from a catching standpoint and be of value to that team, but here's Tony La Russa coming into kind of a precarious situation in Chicago where a lot of people did not think that he should come back to baseball. A lot of people did not want him to manage the White Sox because of the aforementioned things about them being young and fun and, and having this swag about them. If I'm Yadier Molina and I come in and you know a lot of these young guys are going to respect mm-hmm. me and And I can be that conduit for Tony in the clubhouse and say, listen, I have won championships under this guy. And trust me when I tell you that you need to listen to him. He's going to make us Mm -hmm. better. Think about the value that that provides for the Chicago White Sox. And here's one other thing that I think we as Cardinal fans should note. Yachty said when free agency started, he told a Puerto Rican reporter, the teams that have interest in me that have shown interest are the Mets, the Yankees, the Angels and the Padres. The Mets went out and signed James McCann. The Yankees kept Gary Sanchez, seemed happy with him. The Padres made a move for Victor Caratini from the Cubs, and now the Angels are showing interest in Wilson Contreras. Everybody is showing interest in somebody more than they're showing interest in Yadier Molina. Nobody, at least to this point, has said, yeah, that's the guy I need to have. Unless we're just not hearing about it. Right. But you heard... Obviously, Caratini moved. We're hearing about Contreras. We're here. We heard about McCann before he went to the Angels. The the Yankees kind of surprised some people, and maybe the Yankees still do it. I don't know. But those four teams that he mentioned right off the bat, yeah, are finding alternatives. And I I would be surprised. And doesn't that surprise you a little bit that we're not hearing more about uh, the the national interest for Yachty? I know that he's at a certain point in his career, but I would still think that we would. Even throughout this whole process, before some of the other teams found dance partners, I would think that we would be hearing much more about the options that he would have. Yeah, you would think so. But, you know, Major League Baseball is so disinclined to sign players even above the age of 30. A catcher with as many miles as he has on him. And the fact that everybody in baseball knows how strong-willed he is. It's no secret that he's telling the manager that he wants to play. And I don't know that many managers want to be told by a player what to do. Do you think that he would still do that in, an, in another market, in a different try. franchise? Yeah. It's, it's That's who he is. It is, but it's different when that is the role that you've assumed for so long in one place. For instance, you, you have a certain amount of cachet here in St. Louis because you've been here your entire life. I can't imagine, and you're not a demanding person, Randy. You, you, this is not something you would ever do, but if there were some some accommodations that were made for you because of the status that you had here in St. Louis, I can't imagine that if you went to New York that you would just walk into the building and assume that everything was going to be handed to you the same way. Even as a veteran, even as a legend, you still go into that situation being a little bit more deferential to the people around you while you get your bearings. A little bit. I'm not saying severe, but I can't mm-hmm. imagine him right out of the gate no, demanding not, things out of his manager. Not right out of the gate, but I think it depends on the manager's personality and experience and what 
the expectation is, and that expectation has to be laid out right away. If he goes to the Yankees, he has to be told Aaron Boone is the boss. I remember a story when Mike Matheny was in his first year, 2012, and Lance Berkman was on the DL. And I think the Cardinals were in Cincinnati. And Berkman was ready to come off and walks into Matheny's office and says, Skip, I'm healthy. I'm ready to go. Write me in. And Matheny says, why don't you walk out and then come back in and let's start this conversation over. Wow. And Berkman walks in and says, hey, Mike, I just want to tell you I'm healthy. I feel great. I'm ready to go. And they discussed it. And then Matheny put him into the lineup. But it's not the player's job to say, okay, put me in. It's the manager's job to put him into the lineup. And I think that's something that Yachty probably for ever since 2006 has never had to succumb to. Correct. And he's been given certain allowances in St. Louis because of the organization. They have seen on a day-to-day basis the knowledge that he possesses. They've seen on a day-to-day basis the way he impacts a game. They know what he can provide, but they also know the respect that he commands in the clubhouse. They know what a leader he is, and they know the way the fans will respond Mm -hmm. to Yadier Molina. All of those things do not exist if you go to another place. Yes, when you go in there, people will respect you for the type of player that you are and the career that you've had, but you don't hold the same power. The fans in Philly are not going to care if you don't play mm-hmm. if, if you're in Philly and you want to play and they say nope you know what we're not going with you today you need a spell and he takes to social media the fans in Philly are going to look at Yadier Molina in a different light they're not going to you know chastise the Phillies for not putting him in there that's not how it's going to work and it's different here in St. Louis this is just a complete guess on my part this is just the way I'm reading the situation nobody's told me anything but the way I'm reading the situation is if we're here on January 7th and Yadier Molina hasn't signed with the Cardinals he's not going to sign with the Cardinals I'm kind of in the same boat I would be more surprised now if he if he would come back I would too and the Phillies and the White Sox they make sense and there might be a surprise team and I, I would guess that if he does feel at all disrespected, it's players always talk about this. Athletes, DeMarco and Chris and BT will tell you that it's different to have to take a lot less money from a team that you've been with for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's a lot less disrespect if you take less going to another team. And if we know one thing that Yadier Molina isn't, it's complacent. Right. And I just. You know, I don't know him personally. I've not had this conversation with him, but what I can observe about him, I wonder if he's invigorated by the challenge of going somewhere else and diving into something else and proving himself. That's what makes that fire burn all the time is the com- the competition and, and people doubting him and going out there and having that edge. And you're going to have that more if you go somewhere else and people don't expect you to be the same player. Coming up on 101 ESPN, which NFL player feels that way? Which is the most motivated NFL player this weekend? We'll tell you that and give you our hopes for the Super Bowl next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Nine oh one. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler, Carriker and Smallman. In today's big thing, talked about the motivation of Yadier Molina, a player that is highly motivated this weekend in the NFL, is the 
quarterback of the Baltimore Ravens. Lamar Jackson turns 25 today, and he's 0-2 in playoffs. And he has not played well in his two playoff games against the Chargers in 2018 and the Titans last year. He plays the Titans this week, and there are people that are counting the Ravens out because Lamar Jackson was A, out, and because he hasn't been a great playoff performer. It's when to go home right now, you know. I want to win regardless. I don't really care about what people got to say, you know. Um, I've only been in the playoffs twice, you know. My young career, you know, other people have been in the league forever and haven't been in the playoffs at all, but it is what it is, you know. But definitely trying to erase that narrative right there. That's the number one right now in my mind, for sure. The number one thing on his mind is erasing the narrative that he can't win in the playoffs. And that could be a positive or a negative, depending on how you are as a person and as a player. If it's something that is omnipresent in your brain and you feel pressurized because of it and you go out there thinking, I have to win because of the long-term implications of this. But I think he he let us in a little bit when he said, hey, listen, I've had a young career, okay? This has only been mm-hmm. twice. Some people never make it to the playoffs. I'm not that concerned. Um, but he is motivated. It could be something that you go out there and – He wants to win anyway. Of course he wants to win anyway. But being able to say, hey, I can win a playoff game, I'm an MVP player, and I'm a postseason performer is just another thing for him to put on his resume. It's almost held against him that he won an MVP and he's such a dominant player but then hasn't won a playoff game. Because nobody ever talks about Matthew Stafford like this. That's a really good point. You know, they never say, oh, he's, well, he's 0-1 in the playoffs, but he's never won an MVP. He's never been a dominant player, been around forever, but people don't complain about him, his lack of success in the playoffs. Do you think that's because of the organization he plays for, though? I think that's part of it, but I think that Lamar makes a, a great point. I think part of it is that people expect a quarterback who wins an MVP to be great all the time, and I, I think that they expect that that guy should win in the playoffs regardless of what the circumstances are. If Even if Lamar beat the Titans last year, was his team, and by the way, it is a 46-man roster on Sundays, were they going to beat the Chiefs last year? No. That's pretty hard to do. And I, I think sometimes, yeah, he didn't play well against San Diego a couple of years ago, but it wasn't his fault that they lost that game. And this year, he gets to face the Titans in the playoffs. It is what it is, and we got another opportunity right now, so this time let's just finish, and I feel we'll be fine. Like, we did it. We, we played a pretty good game. You know, all phases did, but we, we just got to score points when we need to. We get in the red zone, score points, and I feel we'll be fine. Just finish. That's they a good ran, game plan. Just yeah. score points. Yeah. They ran the ball for 400 yards last weekend. I don't know if they'll be able to do that against Tennessee. Tennessee's defense has really struggled down the stretch, and I would have to think that, the Ravens are thinking, okay, we're just going to pound these guys into submission and maybe only run for 300. Is this the game you're most looking forward to watching? Yeah, I'm really intrigued. Me too, because you have the history there. You, of course, had the scuffle with Harbaugh and Butler earlier in the season. You have Derrick Henry, who's a monster. Mm-hmm. You have Lamar Jackson, who since he's come back from COVID is MVP Lamar Jackson. You have the narratives. There's the storylines. There's the star power. There's the tension between the two teams. It's a pretty even matchup. This is everything you could want in a wild card game. And this is old school. There was a time... One year when the Dolphins won the Super Bowl, I think it might have been the year. It wasn't, it wasn't the undefeated year. It was the year after that, 73. In the playoffs, they played three games, and Bob Greasy in the first playoff game threw the ball seven times, eight times in the AFC Championship game, nine times in the Super Bowl. 
and they would play Pittsburgh, and the teams would throw the ball 20 times between them. Now, the game has changed dramatically, but I wouldn't be surprised to see a Tennessee-Baltimore game where there's less than 40 pass attempts between the two teams. It's going to be... It's going to be a running game, mm-hmm. and it's going to be, hopefully, a hard-hitting defensive game because that's the way both teams are built. If if you have to pick a team to win it on the ground, it's a coin flip. Who are you going with, though? I'm going to go with the Ravens because they have more options. Yeah, me too. Well, because of Lamar Jackson. Yeah. Because he's almost impossible to defend. He's the X factor. He really is. Michelle, as we start the playoffs this weekend, what would be your Super Bowl matchup that would be the most attractive it, it's not going to be your dream matchup because it's, it's 2020. We only have, well, we are going to have our dream scenario. It's just not going to happen in 2020, right? After that season, after that year. What, you just think the universe won't allow it? No, it won't. <laughs> well, so, but still pick the dream scenario? Yeah. I would love to see the Chiefs and the Bucks. That would, would be awesome. I would love to see what is probably Tom Brady's last stand versus the guy who's taking his place. Yeah, that that would be fun. And there's no doubt about it that Mahomes is the next GOAT. Mark Sessler of NFL.com did his top five matchups, and he had as his favorite a rematch of Super Bowl One, the Chiefs and the Packers. And that would include Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers. That would be a scoreboard delight, wouldn't it? To have the the Mahomes-led Chiefs and the and the Rodgers-led Packers on the same field? That would be so great. I would love to see that matchup. I'm with you, though, because I want to see Tampa become the first team to play the Super Bowl on their home turf. That would be very cool. Yeah. And... Just think about it. Brady, Gronk, they're back in the... Think about the storylines that would come out of that game. It would be so... You have two dynamic coaches and Bruce Arians and Andy Reid. There's just... There's so much that's desirable about that matchup. I would love to see it. 65780, if you have a matchup that you'd love to see here, there are the top five, by the way, for Mark Sessler of NFL.com. He's got Chiefs Packers as his top one, Bills Bucks as his number two, Ravens Saints mm-hmm. as his three, Titans Seahawks as his fourth, and Cleveland and Green Bay as his number five. I'm somewhat intrigued by the idea, Michelle, of Russell Wilson getting back to the Super Bowl, but I, I can't really pick my favorite opponent for the Seahawks. If Wilson is in, and by the way, one other fun one would be uh, Indianapolis against with Philip Rivers at the end of his career. Indianapolis and Rivers against Brady and, that and the cool. Bucks. That'd be or Rivers against Breeze would be fun too. But in terms of finding an AFC opponent, uh, who do you like, Russell Wilson? You like Russell Wilson against Lamar? That's what I was just going to say. I would love to see those two quarterbacks go against one another. And those are probably. Two of the top five charismatic coaches in the league, too. Oh, yeah. You'd have some fun seeing uh, the lead up to the Super Bowl with Carroll and John Harbaugh. By the way, do you think that for this Super Bowl, do the teams just fly into Tampa on Saturday like they do for a normal NFL game? I would. I would, I, I would treat it as a strict business trip. I would keep those guys at home and incubated and away from everyone until the we were going to the facility. We're doing the things that we need to do. And then you're going home. That's it. And then we're flying there. We're doing we're we're going to be on the ground in the Super Bowl location as little as possible. And the thing is, 
Tampa isn't like St. Louis. You can go clubbing in Tampa at night. Yes. Right now. Yeah, what? I don't even know. Why even put them at in a position to have those tempta- temptations? And I know the parties aren't going to be there. And, well, I don't know if it's in Florida. Some things might pop up. but I think the NFL will be very protective of the Shield and of the league and yeah. all the people in the league. But there's still going to be people throwing parties. I, w- I was just thinking about Tam- or about Florida. I know it's o- relatively open. I don't know the, to what degree it's open. But I would imagine since it's in Florida, there might be some companies or some parties that are going to say, hey, you know what? We might catch some heat from this, but people are going to show up. And if they'll try to do that. Um, I, I think people will. I- so then if I'm, if yeah. I'm, if my you, team if is the going there, no, you don't abs- want absolutely not. We're not going there. <laughs> Let me just give you some COVID information. I, I, obviously their governor has done nothing. They, they, they don't, I think he might even be a, not a denier, but somebody who really doesn't care if people are out and about. Starting August 20th, the city of Tampa's lift up program is moving into phase three and they re-expanded the use of public and private sidewalks. Well, remember Brady did get. Uh, he got that B and E for going into a park. <laughs> That's right. He did get a B and E, right? <laughs> so, but downtown dining, uh, they do have seating. It's limited seating and takeout. So oh, maybe okay. it is similar to what okay. the county is right now. But you can definitely get into a club. But either way, I'm I'm not putting my players in a position no. where they could sneak out. No, because they can do it. They they'll find a way. Remember the Seahawks player that had the girl dress in team gear? During training camp, yeah. I mean, come on. Brilliant. They're going to find a way. <laughs> yes, they do. Coming up next on 101 ESPN, the Blues had their scrimmage, their first scrimmage last night. We'll talk about that, the power play, and more with our friend Jeremy Rutherford. Our Blues insider from The Athletic is next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. <laughs> time for the Rutherford Report on 101 ESPN. Anything you folks want to know about the fascinating world of pro hockey, here we go. Always great to go to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line when on the other end of that line is the one and only Jeremy Rutherford from The Athletic. He is our Blues Insider here on Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Good morning, sir. How you doing? Good morning. I'm glad hockey's back uh, for obvious reasons, but uh, just as much because I get to talk to you guys more. Miss you guys. Well, we we miss you too, Jr. And it's fun to have the Blues back. And I love what I've heard from Coach Berube and the players over the course of the last couple of days because, as opposed to what we saw and heard last year in the camp leading up to the return in the bubble, there is a level of intensity that this team had in 2018, 2019 that they didn't seem to have last year when the playoffs started. Yeah. And I think that's all because of uh, the bubble. I remember the first uh, couple weeks of practice and, and then they get to Edmonton and all the questions that we ask guys, uh, they said that they would be fine. They know what their game is and, and they'll get to it and they never got to it. And so not only what we've seen in the practices these first couple days, but I think the month leading up to the camp, uh, players were taking it seriously because of how things just went awry in the bubble. So they look like they came to camp prepared. They look like they're off to a pretty good start today. Obviously, we won't know uh, how much so until, until the games begin, but they look like they've learned a lesson from the bubble. Jer, what was your biggest takeaway from the scrimmage last night? 
Yeah, a couple of them. I thought that uh, it's just great watching uh, Tori Krug and Colton uh, Pareko out there. I think the fast lane's calling them the twins. And, <laughs> so and uh, you know, to see them in practice. But last night in, in the game, to watch them play together, uh, I thought it was fascinating in a game. Thing. Krug really gets the puck and goes. Pareko, like Tori Krug told us a couple of days ago, just takes up so much room, can fetch pucks out of the corner. And they're really going to take advantage of each other's strengths. So I think... With Tory Krug being a big headliner this offseason, that was something that I really liked last night. The other thing is uh, Jordan Cairo, kind of a surprise that he starts out on that third line. They're really going to give him an opportunity, in fact, over Sammy Blay. And I thought Cairo did well last night. Uh, basically scored into an empty net. He had a gimme goal, but also had a nice setup on a Zach Sanford goal. Uh, so a goal and assist, uh, he, he did everything he could to hang on to that spot. And then the other thing I'd say is the fourth line. Uh, you look at Kyle Clifford coming in. Doug Armstrong talked to his players after last season, and they said we could use some grit. They're definitely going to need it now. They didn't know they were going to play teams eight times a year and, and see Ryan Reeves eight times a year. But I thought that line with uh, Barbashev, Sunquist, and Clifford looked pretty good last night. JR, you are a lifelong Blues fan, and you have covered this team on a regular basis for a decade and a half now. Have you seen the sort of depth that the Blues have in terms of power play performers that they have right now, they, they seem to me to have two real legitimate power play units with a, a really effective player in, in every spot. And this is without Vladimir Tarasenko on their power plays. Yeah, I've been covering the Blues since 2006 on a regular basis. And I think you probably throw what the next five or six seasons away after that. But, uh, you know, since about 2010, I haven't seen anything like this. And, and it's it's the depth. And I'll get to that in a second. But it's also that firepower on that top unit. And so the Blues, Craig Bruby, Jim Montgomery have decided to load one of the units up. you got Mike Hoffman, uh, David Braun, uh, Shen, O'Reilly, and then, of course, uh, Krug at the top. And what I wrote about today at The Athletic, the thing that's going to excite people is last year you recall watching the Blues on the power play, and, and David Prawn was lined up on that left side, and they were feeding him one-timers, and he was burying them. He had a great year, nine power play goals last year. But this year – they're going to have Hoffman on the opposite side. That's where people like Vladimir Tarasenko to play, but Tarasenko we know doesn't shoot the one-timer, so it really didn't do anything because you didn't expect a one-timer to come from that spot. Well, now you do. So you're going to have Tori Krug, one of the best dishers in the league at the top, and he's going to have the option of sending it to Mike Hoffman or sending it to Perron, and both of them have the ability to put in the one-timer. So I just think loading up on that big unit is number one. And then two, like you said, Randy, the depth. When you're talking about Schwartz and Robert Thomas and Pareko and Dunn on your second power play, that's quality stuff. JR, in the early days of camp, we heard a lot from players and from Craig Bruby about the fact that, hey, there's not, uh, or we're missing some pretty key veteran guys that we've had over the past years, whether it's Jay Bullmeister, Alexander Steen, Tarasenko, uh, Petro, obviously. And they talked about how the Blues are going to have to find a new culture while still retaining their style, if that makes sense. But in your opinion, what adjustments are we going to see from a culture or an identity standpoint? Yeah, it's it's uh, interesting because I think Ryan O'Reilly has handled it perfectly with his comments when he took over as captain and even here in camp. He's only been here two years, but he said that, you know, the culture uh, was terrific when he got here. And he can tell, you know, just talking to guys like Alexander Steen and Alex Petrangelo 
of the past couple of years, you know, where that culture came from. We're not just talking about it's been here for five years or, or 20 years. This is a culture that's been around the St. Louis Blues organization for a half a century. And then the Stanley Cup just emphasized everything and kind of, you know, verified, you know, what they believe here about this organization. So Ryan O'Reilly uh, has said all the right things in terms of saying, we just want to keep that going. We want to do what people did before us. And, and I do think that there's, you know, a, a pride and uh, and keeping going what friends and and teammates like Alexander Steen passed along to them. So, uh, you know, I really thought that leadership could be an issue just from the standpoint that it was changing over. It was going from uh, Alex Petrangelo, who's been in place for a long time, to a different group of guys. But I just see this group, led by Ryan O'Reilly, taking it and running with it. Jer, I'm curious about Colton Pareko because we know he's going to have an expanded role, especially from a leadership standpoint. But Randy and I were talking on the show yesterday. He's such a deferential guy and kind of a humble guy. Um, Do you think that that might be something that causes him to not be as vocal of a leader? Or what kind of leader do you think we're going to see him be now that he has more of an opportunity to be one? Yeah, it's it's leading by example on the ice, which we've seen. He's a, he's a great player. Uh, we all know that uh, he, he needs to take that next step, I think, with his play in terms of uh, shooting it more. How long have we been saying that? But every conversation I've had with him the past six months, he says, I get it. I know it. I'm going to do it. And, and I think, uh, you know, I think we got a chance of seeing that from Colton Preco. In terms of being a leader, look, he's an NHLPA uh, rep for the team. So off the ice, that's the, the traits that he has is kind of bringing everything together and helping each other out. I, I think the question that you ask is is dead on. It, it, it's being vocal. And that doesn't mean being in guys' faces and, and yelling. It just means taking charge in situations that need that leadership. That's why I thought it was very important that they put the uh, the A on him. I thought it might go to a couple of those uh, forwards, uh, but I think uh, Colton Preco probably not ready for a captaincy yet. Ryan O'Reilly makes all the sense in the world, but get Colton Pareko uh, a voice, and they've done that with that A and the position that they're giving him, Michelle. I think this is the setting uh, for Colton Pareko to realize what people are trying to, uh, to give him, and I think he's smart enough to take it. J.R., Doug Armstrong has been pretty open about the fact that he felt like he opened a five-year window when he made the trade for O'Reilly, signed Perron, signed Bozak a few years ago. And he does say that we're in year three of a five-year window. You think the players think that? Does he? Is that something that the management even relates to the players? And do you, do you think the players say, okay, we're in a finite time here with this group to win another Stanley Cup? Probably not. I know they, they hear it. Uh, they hear everything. Uh, but in terms of processing it and thinking on those terms, uh, very, very doubtful. You know, I think when Doug says that, you know, the five years is kind of a, you know, a term that's used a lot. And, and then also you look at the contract situation. Ryan O'Reilly's got uh, three years left and, and Tarasenko, you know, who knows with his health, he's got a, a few years left. And, and some of these guys are going to be, you know, even the Braden Shen, they're going to be early to mid thirties. So, you know, I, I think that everybody probably realizes that there's going to be a, a loss of that core group at some point. Um, so that perhaps is why Doug Armstrong looks at it uh, as that window. But we all know that rosters revolve. Who would have thought two years ago that uh, Petrangelo would be gone and, and crew could be here and, and Mike Hoffman, you know, if Hoffman enjoys his time here, maybe he resigns for a couple of years and extends that window. So, you know, I, I totally understand where Doug Armstrong's uh, coming from and, and what he's talking about. Uh, but I, I think it's based on a few of those contracts and uh, we all know that uh, things change and the Blues could even be in a better spot in two years. JR, before we let you go, I want to ask about how you're handling this because 
what makes Jeremy Rutherford, part of what makes Jeremy Rutherford a great reporter is your contacts and your relationships with everybody within that organization. And now, because of COVID, you don't really have the opportunity to utilize those contacts or make those relationships that you have over the years. So how is it different now covering the Blues as opposed to one year ago right now? Yeah, Michelle's so young, she probably doesn't even know this word, uh, Rolodex, but uh, you build up a pretty good Rolodex over the years, and uh, you just got to use it, and, and you got to make phone calls and call people. It is difficult, Randy. I was talking to somebody about this the other day where, you know, for years you're used to going to the rink, you pass somebody maybe you haven't talked to in a couple weeks, and you learn something from them, and you get some insight about what's going on with this guy or, or that guy, and you just don't have that unless you uh, pick up the phone. And, you know, like last night, we're out at uh, Centene, game's over, normally you'd walk in the locker room and uh, and talk to Nico Mikula and, and find out you know why why is he off to such a great start in this camp? Craig Bruby really likes what he's doing, uh, but you just can't do that. You get on the Zoom calls and you get your five or six questions. So it takes a little bit more to uh, develop stories and, and thoughts, but uh, but everybody's going through it, and uh, we we've been doing this for a while, past nine or ten months. So we'll just uh, keep doing our best. Jr., you're the best. Always good to talk to you, sir. Thank you very much, and we'll talk again soon. You guys, too. Thanks a lot. See you. You can read JR's work at The Athletic. You should get that subscription. It's one of the best tools that we have, and it's one of the best things for a sports fan. And, of course, you can always follow JR on Twitter at J.P. Rutherford. So glad to have hockey back. So glad to be talking to JR Weekly. Six more days until the Blues open up in Colorado. Next up, you're killing me, Smalls, on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. <laughs> What's totally killing Smalls right now? You're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me, Smalls, with Michelle Smallman on 101 ESPN. All right, always look forward to this. You're killing me, Smalls. Randy, you may have heard Tanner just mention in the update that our guy, hometown product St. Louis and Bradley Beal, scored 60 points last night in the Wizards game versus the 76ers. Oh, BB, B- all right. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, except they lost. They lost the game. You don't lose a game when you score 60 points. (laughs) According to Bradley Beal, he did twice because not only did they fall to the 76ers 141 to 136, but this was his quote after the game. I'm pissed off. I'm mad. I don't count them. Any of my career highs, they've been in losses, so I don't give a damn. You can throw it right out the window with the two or three that I've had. I just want to win. Sometimes you might be able to score 40, 50, 60, whatever the case may be, but I just want to win whatever that looks like, and we came up a bit short tonight. Good for him. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear a guy that is upset that he doesn't win, and it's not all about personal achievement, but it's about team achievement. And that's just part and parcel of what Bradley was growing up here in St. Louis and playing in the AAU teams and and, and at Chaminade. He really was a guy who was about the team and I love the fact that there are NBA players that care more about winning than their own personal glory. But imagine you're Bradley Beal. You put up 60, and you've been with this franchise, and you've been so patient with them as they tried to figure it out and get you to a certain level. I, I wonder how frustrated he is, not only with losing after he puts up 60, but just with the path, with the entire path of his career. I would imagine a guy like that is so desperate to win at this point. And that's why you hear comments like that last night. It's not just an isolated, I put up 60 and we Mm. won. I bet it's a culmination of a lot of feelings of frustration. Like, I want to be a champion. Well, they've been through coaches. They've been through GMs. 
you really have to be in the right place at the right time when you have a number one pick in the draft, and it just didn't work out for them when they had the number one pick and took John Wall. And obviously, you get Beal with a high pick, but who do they have left? He, he's This is a league where you have to have at least two and many times three stars. And granted, they have Russell Westbrook, but he and Bradley Beal, Beal's a better version of Westbrook at this stage of their careers. So I don't think they have what it takes to win. I think he's in the wrong spot right now. This is from, I was reading about this uh, this morning from CBS Sports. So Russell Westbrook is only shooting 39.4% from the field this season. Not only, this is from CBS, is that the worst figure of his career, but if it lasted the whole season, it would be the second lowest field goal percentage by a former MVP this century not coming off a major injury. Wow. See, he's, he's scuffling. And I don't know if he'll get it back. He, and he never... I've never thought that he, well, I thought, obviously, he's a great player. He averaged a triple-double. But I always thought that he was too selfish to be a championship player. Free Bradley Beal. Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, Let's let's get him to the Warriors. Let's do it. Although, uh, it wouldn't be like the Wizards haven't had a big contract for a hurt guy before because they've been paying John Wall the last couple of years, $40 million a year. But they would have to... The Warriors would have to move Clay Thompson in that deal. You're killing me, Small. So, Randy, as we get geared up for the NFL playoffs, obviously a lot of eyes trained to Tampa Bay, talking about Brady, talking about Gronk. And Jenna Lane of ESPN asked Gronk about his favorite off-field memory with Tom Brady. Of course, they're asking them about the game plan, this and that. But these are two guys who have been together for a long time. They know one another very well. So she asked him about his favorite off-field memory with Tom Brady, and this is what Gronk had to say. What is your favorite memory with Tom off the field? Oh, yeah, man, just just throwing me right on the spot. Uh, we did it to him, too. And yeah, he, and he yeah. Too. My, my favorite memory? Oh, mm-hmm. uh, I would just say uh, going to the Kentucky Derby and, and seeing him take a shot and, like, just seeing his face after, like, in disgust. <laughs> like, like, I'm putting this alcohol in my body and, you know, takes a shot and just, like, like, Oh, how am I going to throw next week? <laughs> what was it a shot of? What's that? What was it a shot of? Uh, I think fireball. <laughs> That's fantastic. And you, you can just see that, right? Isn't that exactly what you would expect out of Tom Brady if he took a shot of fireball? Yep. Immediately to be disgusted by the taste and by the alcohol hitting his system and impacting his perfect temple of a body that doesn't have <laughs> nightshades or anything bad in it. And he's worried about how that one shot of alcohol could impact his performance. I just thought that was such a great answer. It's an epic off-field moment. And Kudos to Brady because he knew he was going to have to do that. If you're going to the Kentucky Derby, you got to party a little. It's part of the reason you go right. is to party and have a good time. Yeah, so that's a great memory. That's pretty cool. Also, I love that laugh out of Gronk. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. Did you ever hear, by the way, one time DeMarco and Seve made a, a bet on a Rams game that okay. they were on the road, and I don't know what the bet was within the game. It wasn't, wasn't on the game. It was somebody would do something or not do something within the game. And the bet was that if Seve lost, he would have to eat a candy bar when they got on the charter on the way home. That does and not seem like a punishment. Seve <laughs> treats his body like Tom Brady treats yes. his. And they said that, and it was, I think Dodie Rallman was on the plane too, that when Seve took a bite of a Snickers bar, he practically turned green. 
Really? Yeah. His body just revolted against the sugar? Yeah, right. Man, I would have been like, thank you. Yeah, I'll have another. And they were uh, king size, too. And see, that's interesting because I would think if I was abstaining from all things, like, think about 75 hard. Mm-hmm. I essentially lived the TB12 lifestyle for 75 days. No booze. I was working out, hydrating all the time, pliability, huge factor. Mm-hmm. All of these, I was reading, I was exercising my mind, all of these things. The second it was over and I took a forkful of gooey butter cake, <laughs> as soon as it hits your lips, you're like, yes. <laughs> now, you do instantly feel terrible because your body's not used to it. Yeah. You get that crash pretty quickly. But when you instantly eat it, it's great. That's why I'm surprised that he would take a bite and not think, man, what am I missing? Sugar yeah. is awesome. Yeah, it. I think it had been longer for, than 75 days. I think it had been a lifestyle for Sevi for such a long time. But it still tastes good is my point. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, Unbelievable. You, yes, it, you're going to feel it later. But in that infant moment in that very first second it tastes great it does i haven't had a snickers in a long time when's the last time you had a snickers you know it's not my candy bar of choice so it's been a long time okay my candy bar of choice is a twix and it's still been a long time for a twix maybe a couple years wow i'm not a let's pull over at the gas station get a fountain soda at a candy bar type girl unless i'm going on a road trip Good for you and even then it's okay, I'm going with the ranch corn nuts because it's something that can sustain you for a long time. Right. You get the crunch, a little bit of the ranch flavoring. It's the best road trip snack. That's fantastic. Corn nuts, keep that in mind. (laughs) Ranch corn nuts. Ranch corn nuts. Very specific. Um, You you used to be that guy, though. Oh, all the time, yeah. Yeah, now you're not anymore? No, uh, I've, I've quit the candy bar. Haven't had one in a long time. Good for you. Yeah. Proud of you. And we should uh, say best wishes to Sevi, by the way, who tested positive for COVID-19. And we hope he's feeling better. He says he's not having side effects. And we hope that Sevi is uh, back in Adam pretty soon. Absolutely. You're killing me, Smalls. Okay, Randy, we know... We've seen it with the World Series, with limited fans. Having some fans there is better than no fans. But we're all desperate for the moment that we have a game that matters and we can see a stadium packed to the rafters. Mm -hmm. That's what we all want. We miss that moment. And there's a few places in sports that are a little bit more special than others or that are a little bit more of a wild environment or an intimidating environment than others. And one of those, of course, is in New Orleans, the Superdome. So Sean Payton was talking about ways. He was trying to be creative, ways that maybe they could pack the Superdome when the Saints host the Bears this weekend. And this is what Sean Payton suggested. He said, quote, I brought up the idea of testing 50,000 people and quarantining them in a hotel and having the most safest Superdome known to man scientifically. You bust them in, they test it every day, and boom, you've got a COVID-free facility. I love the thought. And don't you think 50,000 fans would do that? There's no doubt, especially down there. Especially down there. Any team, any playoff team that's playing a home game, Yes, 50,000 fans would be happy to do that. Now you'd have to have the 50,000 hotel rooms, which they do in New Orleans. Not 50,000, probably 25,000, right? But that'd be pretty awesome. That's a great thought. And according to Pro Football Talk, the Saints actually explored the the viability of this. It was something they thought maybe we could get super creative and and figure it out. But I, I think you probably look at it and... On the surface, it seems like, okay, maybe it's something we could pull off. And then you dig a little bit into the logistics and think, no, there's there's no way that this is going to be able to go off without a hitch. And we're setting ourselves up for a disaster. Right, because all it takes is one person for a super spreader event. And that one person could, on Friday, not test positive, but by Sunday have, well, not test positive, but still have 
the disease and spread it throughout 50,000 people. And you're going to trust 50,000 strangers that they're going to quarantine correctly, or then you're going to hire, what, security, security to yeah. monitor? Security. <laughs> security. <laughs> yeah, someone's trying to sneak out for sure. That's great, though. Thank you, Michelle. You're welcome. Coming up, we're going to cross things over with Dan McLaughlin. Scoops with Danny Mac at the top of the hour. Danny will be with us next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Time now for the crossover. Brought to you by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Close to home or close to work. For quality tires and expert auto service, you can always count on Dobbs. Down the stretch with Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. And we cross things over with Dan McLaughlin, who will be with you after 10 o'clock. Scoops with Danny Mac coming up, as it does every day here on 101 ESPN from 10 to 11. And uh, I don't know if we've made the announcement official yet, but we will now that uh, Dan is going to be part of Carriker and Smallman. So yeah. Character and Smallman and McLaughlin on Thursdays and Fridays from 7 to 10. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks awesome. for uh, having me in, guys. Oh, we're excited about it, too. Appreciate it. Doesn't now, get any better than that. Did, yeah. you, did you know, Dan, that the new guy in the crew has to bring something? Donuts, coffee, whatever yeah. you choose. I, I, you're tasked with that? Well, you're off your uh, 75 hard, right? <laughs> so, believe it. Yeah, so I'll bring in the coffee, the Mountain Dew, the donuts every Thursday <laughs> and Friday. Tanner, what would you like? Anything that you... I'll uh, just take coffee. You, okay, I'll bring some coffee for you. Thought Happy that we to do that. Rookie hazing for Danny Mack. <laughs> That's all right. You know, I'm used to it. No big deal. Back in the days when I was, um, when I was doing uh, Cardinal baseball, man, I was... Basically, I was younger than the players, so it was yeah. really rough then. Well, <laughs> it was just... I remember getting on the plane uh, with the players, and I was just like, man, just get me off this plane. <laughs> just get me to the hotel room, please. It was tough. Are it you was a, tough. Are you a prank guy, Dan, or have you ever had a big prank pulled on you when you were on doing a road trip with the team or something? Oh, guys would mess with you. They, they, were, pretty, they were pretty good to you. You know, um, seriously, I would just put my head down and just try to get on the plane and get off the plane. Guys are really nice to me, for the most part. Mm-hmm. They... I mean, I had guys um, put their entire bill on my room. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had really? that a couple of times. I think, I, I think Big Walt did that to me one time. I went down to check out at the... I need to ask Walt if that was him. That's I think hilarious. it was. I went down. I was like, you know, checking out. And I was like, okay, you know, room uh, 714 uh, McLaughlin. Oh, yes, sir. Uh, Mr. McLaughlin, you owe us $1,200. I said, What? <laughs> I didn't do anything. I went to my room. I didn't do it. Yeah, well, the hotel bar has got, you know, 8,000 Bud Lights in this thing, and, you know, and a couple pizzas. And I said, that wasn't me. And I can I look behind me, and there's Walt laughing, you know. Yeah, and I said, I promise you it wasn't me. So I had a couple of those going on for me. Yeah, that wasn't a lot of fun. That's pretty good. Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah, now, had a few you, of those. Have you paid it forward now that... You're the elder statesman. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Did that to a couple people. Yeah, you got to do that for sure. I won't do that to you guys, though. The Good. tricks that uh, are played on young players, and Brad Thompson has been a victim of them all and then perpetrated them all. For sure. They're epic. Well, you definitely, you know, if you guys, if you go out to dinner or something, you usually you'd like to, if you're the veteran, you want to pick up the tab. Mm-hmm. You know, you do that. Yeah. But sometimes the young guy is stuck with the tab. So you got to do that. So if we all go out to dinner, if we're allowed to all go out to dinner sometime, I'll be happy to 
to pick up the tab. One of the bad things about the NFL is that they have their NFL rookie dinners and, like, the rookie in a position oh, group has oh, to take yeah. the players out, and it winds up being forty, forty-five thousand dollars yeah, It's right. your signing bonus or something. Yeah. You know? It's unbelievable. It's stupid. Yeah. I don't understand that. Like, it should be if... if you go out with a, uh, the rookies, and the guy's been in the league for five, six years, and he's made you know umpteen million dollars. He should pick up the dinner, no doubt. That's stupid. Yeah, I think I'm with you, but you know who am I to say? Yeah. Uh, now, if it was Sam Bradford, that was one thing, but yeah. now these exactly. days in the NFL, exactly. Yeah. And you, know, you think it might be a bonding moment, kind of a galvanizing thing. You're all at dinner; it's a shared experience. Hey, we did this when we were rookies. But what if you don't like the veterans on the team? What if they're not that nice to you, and then yeah. you're stuck with the bill? But my thing is, like, the rookie has got to take it. But what if he didn't sign for that kind of money? Right. You know, and you're you're trying to fit in, and you're trying to keep the tradition alive, and do the right thing. And you're like, guys, I really didn't make you know the kind of money I'm you know hoping to make that kind of money. And I made good money. I made great money. You know, I made eight hundred thousand, or I made a million dollars. That's unbelievable money. But I I can't really be shelling out forty five thousand dollars for yeah. this dinner tab you and know? it's not just dinner it's punitive it's the veterans ordering the most expensive bottle of wine oh, yeah. on the menu and taking it home oh, that's yeah. right doing ridiculous stuff not just being at the dinner it's like well i'm going to take that to go and hey mm-hmm. johnny do you want that yeah let's take that one to go we'll go back to the hotel room we'll do this that and the other yeah, yeah. that kind of stuff happens all the time yeah i like it when the uh the qb orders the uh, rolexes for the offensive lineman. Oh, yeah. i yeah. love that yeah that, that's a power move. And we had it here. Actually, Sam was you pretty good about that. No, we, we, oh, okay. in St. Louis with the Rams, <laughs> Kurt was always very good to yeah. his guys, obviously. And Trent Green started that. Uh, even though he didn't play, he took care of those guys. But they've become really creative. Like they, uh, One quarterback got his guys all four-wheelers last year. Do you see what um, Michael Porter did for his father? Uh-uh. For Christmas, he got his dad a Tesla. Nice. Wow. Very nice. He, they rolled out of the uh, like the garage or something, and um, and Michael Porter Jr. His rolled. He said, "What's that?" And he said, "This is yours. Merry Christmas." That's pretty awesome. It was pretty cool. They had it on video, and that was pretty nice. Yeah. Evidently, Jonte is pretty close to playing for Memphis. Oh, is that nice. right? Yeah, that'd be pretty cool to have a couple brothers playing together like that in the yeah. uh, in the association, and especially after Jonte tore the knee twice. Yeah, to be able to get him going again would be very cool. Absolutely. About, have you seen the numbers that Beal is putting up? We were just talking about that. We it's just ridiculous. In a loss. Yeah, he's unbelievable. I watched Tatum last night. He's unbelievable. Yeah, ridiculous. So two St. Louis guys lighting it up in the association. Pretty cool. Now, once there's an expansion team in St. Louis, we need to get Absolutely. those guys home. Did you see that tweet that was going around? Yeah. Randy and I talked about that a little bit yesterday. They said the N- NBA is considering adding two expansion teams, and then they posed the question, what cities would be great fits for the NBA? And we said there's only one answer, Seattle and St. Louis. Seattle, St. Louis. Um, I think Kansas City would be it. They're going to go to Vegas. Um, I, I mean, I keep always going back to Nashville. The way that Nashville mm-hmm. is exploding, why wouldn't you go to Nashville? That would be the one. I think um, the one that makes sense to me is – Well, I keep always thinking that because of the losses that we're having, the biblical losses that we're having in sports, I keep saying that all sports are going to expand to get money in the coffers and get big money in it. And I I keep thinking that baseball will expand. I think so. And um, so I, I see baseball expanding. I see the NBA expanding. And it's just a way to get money right back in. 
right back in. I mean, boom, instantaneous money right back into the coffers. And I could see baseball doing that, doing that and realigning um, uh, just boom. I mean, you and get you get what? You would get uh, what's your expansion? A billion and a half probably. So $3 billion? You're, you're, you're probably talking baseball? right around a billion, I would yeah. assume. You know, it's got to be right around there. Didn't the Royals go for more than a billion and a yes. half? And if they, if they do in that market, then Absolutely. You're, you're starting there, I would think. I would also think that the other teams would look, other leagues would look at the NFL and say, 32 is a good number. That's one of the reasons that the NFL owners don't want to expand because 32 is ideal with your four team divisions, four four yeah. team divisions in each league. Baseball, it makes sense. It would be perfect. Yes. I think it makes sense. And then you can realign geographically. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it makes sense. Yeah. I would do it. Going back to the NBA, Seattle and St. Louis, the top two top TV markets that don't have NBA teams. We were talking about that when Michelle was on vacation, yeah. how it would make sense. Now, you do have some Fortune 500 companies that have left town. Uh, there's more Fortune 500 companies here than in Kansas City. Uh, Kansas City's got the Sprint Center, which is that's been, re- you know, it's been disappointing, I would assume, for them to have that awesome building and not have hockey or basketball. But when hockey expanded, they didn't have a single person apply for an expansion team. Nobody wanted to foot the bill to be the owner of an, uh, an expansion hockey team in Kansas City. Not one. The two things I look at, too, is that with betting exploding as well. And so when you're looking at these states that are losing a lot of money because of the virus, that's another way to get yeah. money into your state, I would assume. Um, that's another way to do it, is to to try to get professional sports into your state. Yeah, and it really does open up Vegas. The, the complaint about Vegas all the time was, well, we don't want to be associated with gambling. Well, now everybody wants matter. to be associated with gambling. No, it never did, but they, they used it. You got this thing called the internets, mm-hmm. and you can you can do it. You just get on. Well, Dan, there's a mouse I think here. What you, you do is just download the FanDuel Sportsbook That's right. app. That's right. If I like. would use if I were you. Uh huh. There's a couple promo codes, but I would specifically use WXOS. That's a good one. So they know I sent you. Okay. I'm just saying. If I know you guys, look at Tanner. He's trying not to smile. Tanner WXOS. I'm okay. just saying. If you want to do it, that's one way to do it. I like that a lot. Okay. Also, the promo code SMALLS is available. I know it is. <laughs> if you want to use that. <laughs> what do we have coming up on Scoops? Uh, we'll recap what happened last night at Centene. So we'll talk about that. The winter warm-up is around the corner, so we'll talk a little baseball. Virtual winter warm-up. Mm-hmm. It's going to be virtual. It's going to be different. Um, hopefully, they raise a lot of money. This is the, you know, they've raised over $25 million. It's the charitable arm of the Cardinals, um, which I think kind of the misconception is like, oh, okay, well, they make a lot of money and it goes to a second baseman or it goes to a shortstop. It doesn't. 100% goes to helping kids in the community. So we'll talk about that. Clearly not going to the second baseman. (laughs) Well, any of the NL Central teams aren't spending any money. So it's not just the Cardinals. I mean, let's get some money out there. Let's start spending some money. Um, And let's, let's hope that it gets going, man. Yeah. I mean... Jeez, we're, I, we're five and a half weeks away from spring training now. I would think day by day, we have to be getting closer to some knowledge of what things are going to look like in terms of having people in the stands. And I would think once we pass the inauguration, we'll have a, a better idea of the distribution of the vaccine, how the new administration plans to do it, and then maybe have a better idea once we get to 
unfortunately, the end of February as to whether or not they'll be able to get people in the stands. I would think so. I, I mean, even if we don't have fans in the stands early, we showed that I would assume if if I was a player, I would be saying, and this is strictly from a player's perspective, they're saying, now, wait a minute, I want 162 games. Mm-hmm. I want to get paid in full. We showed you last year with no vaccine, we got 60 games in and a championship. And you're telling me that we're not going to play a full season? That's from their perspective. I would guarantee you that's what they're Andrew saying. Andrew Miller basically said that to uh, Rick Hummel in the post today. Yeah, um, that we can we, and now that when we get through the summer and people are going to get outside and we're not cooped up inside in these cold weather cities. Hey, we, we want to start even if it means without fans in the stands, we can at least start. And some of these places are going to be out, you know, opened up some of the states, you would assume so. I would think we start on time. That's my guess. I agree with the players on that, by the way. If you can get 12,000 in the stands for the World Series, then why can't you start the next season when theoretically things should be better, but they aren't. But theoretically, by the time you get to the 1st of April, things should be better, and you've got to play it by ear. But we do have a pretty good idea now about social distancing, and you would think that getting 12,000, 10,000 into Bush Stadium would be doable. I would think. I would hope I, you know, if you if you were able, like you said, to get this done without a vaccine, twelve thousand people for the World Series, let's do it. What do you think? Let's do it. I would love it. Come on, Michelle. What do you think? We we need more people. We need people in the stands, Dan. Well, we need people in the stands, and if the other sports are playing, and if they got through football, the NFL, college football, and Mm -hmm. they they are going to get through college basketball because they have to. Mm You need to get to March Madness. Yeah, you have two years in a row without it. Yeah, you have. You need that. Which, you know, you could sit there and say morally whatever you think about it. Kids aren't getting paid, and yet they're going to get through it to to get paid. Yeah. It, you know, and to get other people paid. That's right. You can say what you want about it, <clears throat> but they're going to get there one way or another. If they have to shoot us up, they're going to wind up yeah. putting us on CBS. Um, so they're going to they're going to get that that check one way or another. So they're going to have that done. Um, they're going to play. I just I think the the players' association will say, "Look, you got through all this, and by the way, we already did it before. Mm-hmm. We are playing. Yeah. We're looking forward to your show. Okay, Thank looking you. forward to it. See you guys tomorrow. Thanks to our producer engineer Tanner Hendrickson. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Michelle. Great work as always. Thank you. Thanks, Randy. See you tomorrow. And we appreciate you tuning in, texting in, and being a part of the show for all of us until tomorrow morning at seven. Have a great day, St. Louis. You've been listening to the Character and Smallman podcast, powered by I Promise. Anyone else have trouble sleeping last night and the night before that? Same. And I've tried everything, but it either doesn't help me sleep so I'm cranky and tired the next day, or I sleep and then I'm drowsy the next day. Luckily, Seize the Night and Day is here. Go to SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more about insomnia and how you can seize the night. And Carpe the Diem. Make their mission your mission, because they will not rest until we all rest. Let me guess. Unknown caller? You could reduce the number of unwanted calls and emails with online privacy protection. The latest innovation from Discover will help regularly remove your personal info, like your name and address, from 10 popular people search websites that could sell your data. And we'll do it for free. Activate in the Discover app. See terms and learn more at discover.com slash online privacy protection.